Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezra. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. And this is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. And this is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 54. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... You got Josh. This is Zach. And this is Don. And we are bringing you the latest comic news from the past two weeks and a total of ten books to review. So we've got a lot to cover, so let's get right into it. A problem, sir? It's not here. What's not here, sir? You know what I'm talking about. The entrance to the Batcave. Why is it sealed up? Batcave? I'm sorry, I don't... That's right, Alfred. The Batcave. The first thing we've got is from October 19th. Newsrama posts up an interview with Adam Beechin. As we know, Adam Beechin still has two more issues of Batman Beyond left. One of them, which we'll be reviewing today, and then another one in November. In January, Beechin will be continuing with the ongoing Batman Beyond series. So let's cover the highlights from this uh, interview. I will read for Newsrama, and Josh will read for Adam Beechin. The Batman Beyond universe is now addressed what happened to Dick Grayson, although there appears to be some mystery behind it. How will his story continue into the future of your ongoing series? I don't want to say too much to avoid giving away how the final two issues will play out, except that the ongoing will continue to explore characters from the comic continuity who were either hinted at or never appeared in the animated series. Will the ongoing series tie into what's going on now with Batman and comic continuity? There aren't any immediate plans for tie-ins with the current continuity for the Batman books. Then what other stories or characters might we see show up in Batman Beyond? The first arc we have planned brings in a new villain and some heroes we've seen before in the animated universe. The second takes us to a location outside of Gotham, comic readers will be familiar with, and introduces a long-standing hero into the Batman Beyond continuity. And the third sees a return of one of BB's first villains, as well as introducing some new ones. Right, so we'll get into what they were talking about with Dick Grayson when we, we review that book. You know what's great about you, Puddin'? You really put the fun in funeral. Alright, so the next thing we've got is on October 20th, Comic Book Resources posts up an interview with Grant Morrison, and there was really only one highlight from that, so I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Donovan will read for Grant Morrison. As he makes his worldwide trip to train new Batman, Bruce is going to cross paths with the villain Lord Deathman in issue number two. That character came to prominence in the past few years with the release of Batmanga anthology of the 60s Japanese Batman comics. But even that was already based on an older story from Batman number 180. Did you read the manga book when it came out and instantly kind of gravitate towards the villain? Oh, sure. I got the manga book way back and just loved the strange look of it and the way that they did the Deathman character. I've never been into that old new look story. It wasn't that great of a character. But the idea of someone who dies and comes back to life is kind of cool. 
and they didn't do much with it. But the Japanese version is kind of creepy and weird and slightly off-center. I mean, the fact that they call him Lord Deathman instead of just Deathman is so much cooler by a factor of 10. So I thought immediately he was someone to play with. And again, I wanted to incorporate as many elements as we possibly could into the series. We can go, okay, let's take the Batmanga and ask, what if those stories were real as well? What if there was a Batman in Japan and he does fight Lord Deathman and Professor Gorilla as well? That's another fabulous Japanese villain. So this is a story of how that guy came to be and a Batman finding his own version of a crime fighter in Japan who could take over for him. But as always, it's not without problems. That's why we got a nice two-part story here. What can I say? It's Batman creating Batmanga, essentially. <laughs> and of course, Professor Gorilla gets some page time as well. All right, so that's the interview. Professor Gorilla, I'm not familiar with that character. Maybe someone can enlighten me. I don't know. Based on the fact that none of us know, I'm going to say, that, you know, Morrison really, really decides to pull these random characters out of nowhere. Well, they're out of somewhere, but uh, nonetheless, it's it's very interesting how they're very, they have very little to do with the character in general, but they work, and he makes them work, so props to him for that. All right, so the next thing we've got is from October 22nd. IGN posts an interview with David Finch. We know that Finch will be not only doing the art for November's new series entitled Batman the Dark Knight, but will also be trying his hand at writing. For this interview, I will read for IGN Comics, and Zach will read for David Finch. First off, you're newly exclusive to DC and your first regular interior assignment is with Batman. I have to imagine you did have a significant input in that and could have picked from much of DC's library. Why Batman? Is it the character, the vibe, or tone of the franchise? Is it the thrill of Gotham City? Its villains? I've always been a big Batman fan, so getting the chance to put my mark on the character was very important to me. Batman really is about a lot more than just Bruce Wayne, though. It's the mood of Gotham City and all of his crazy villains that make the book what it is. I've heard this series described as a bit of detective nor mixed with some heavy supernatural elements, including the demon. What else can you say about the opening storyline? Bruce has started thinking large scale, and in his own head he's grown beyond Gotham City and its problems. He's left all of that behind, but he finds that he can't let go quite so easily when Don Golden disappears. His search for her very quickly turns into a fight for survival deep under Gotham City against a very mysterious cult. Can you go into some detail about Dawn Golden? She's a socialite, but what else dis distinguishes her from some of the other women that have come and gone from Bruce's life? How does he react to her considering he's just back from a trip through time? Dawn is a tragic figure in Bruce's life. She's very beautiful, but completely remote. He remembers a time when they were young children and things were different, but he also remembers her domineering father and the iron grip he held her under. He couldn't save her then, and a year later he couldn't save her parents. Maybe saving her now can make him a little more whole. Bruce's trip through time has affected him more than he knows. That affects more than just his reaction to Don. Let's talk villains. I don't believe you've revealed the central villain in your first story. Any clues you can drop? The central villain in my initial arc is a new character, but one that will have ties with existing villains. I don't want to stray very far from the formula that works for Batman. I think that Batman may be the strongest thematic character in the business, and a long line of very talented people have established a book that stands the test of time. I came onto this project because I love what it is, so wholesale changes doesn't make much sense for me. 
All right, so that's the end of that interview. One thing that I've got to comment on with the the talk about this character, Dawn Golden, I find it interesting how many different characters have really been added into continuity over just the past year. I mean, his childhood, yeah. Not just his childhood. I mean, like, yes, this is from his childhood. We've we've seen a lot more from you know the of Tommy Elliot's past and characters involved in the Waynes and the Elliots past together. But just in general, there's a lot of characters. When we get into some of the books from The Road Home, there's characters that have never been appeared before, and it's clear that they've never appeared because they introduce themselves as they are new people who are getting into Gotham, and they are auditioning. So, I mean, with that being said, I find it interesting just how many more characters... Everybody always says Batman has the biggest rogues gallery, and ultimately he has the largest supporting cast gallery of any other pers- any other comic book character whether it be marvel dc or anything i think batman has a very big supporting cast i mean batman's one of the only characters where like half of his supporting cast has their own titles very well, true, not ju- very true. yeah yeah not just that but if you contemplate the people within gotham city how many heroes are within just the confines of gotham city like the only other person that anybody ever talks about the rogues gallery is spider-man spider-man's rogues gallery is you know pretty decent too but when you think of the supporting characters I, as just a normal comic fan, only know of so many. Now, I'm sure I wouldn't know of half as many with uh, Batman, but you compare just the two movies to each other, and it seems like there's a lot more supporting characters within the Batman movies than there is in the Spider-Man movies. And when I say characters, I mean characters who have roles, not just they show up like Flash Thompson in Spider-Man. Right, well, think of of Gotham Central. That whole book was... That's Nothing a whole but a title, but supporting characters. Yeah, or the Gotham Gazette one shots, which were awesome. Very, very good point. One thing with this interview, I hated the question. It's like, what makes this girl different than all the other girls in Bruce's life? It's like, well, she's a tragic figure. She's a socialite, and get this, she has a domineering father, and she can't quite get out from under his thumb. It's like, that's <laughs> like. Jezebel Jet, but without the father, basically. That's like Jezebel Jet, Kathy Duquesne from Mystery of the Batwoman, um, yeah. one of the versions of Julie Madison from Dark Moon Rising, Andrea Beaumont. It's like, do you want to go on? Oh, uh, what was that girl whose father was the repo? Rachel, Rachel Capizan or something. It's like, like girls with daddy issues is like all he's attracted to because Bruce Wayne has daddy issues. Socialite girls with daddy issues and they can't get out of their father's thumbs and they're tragic figures and Bruce can't help the tragedies that happen to their fathers because ultimately the fathers wind up dying as what happened with Julie Madison's father and Andrea Beaumont's father and etc. It's very stereotypical character. Yeah, yeah, don't say, how is this character different? Well... This character is exactly like every other character that's appeared in Batman. I am Catwoman. Hear me roar. All right, so that's that interview. Let's move into the next bit of things we've got, which was on October 26th, IGN posted up an announcement from Mike Martz that changes the creators for Batman Robin after Morrison's departure. And his comment said, Both Peter and Patrick were pulling double duty on Brightest Day and Batman Robins. No easy task, even for dedicated and hardworking creators like these guys. So rather than have them running ragged on both titles, we decided to make their lives a little easier by delaying the start of the run on Batman Robin. This way, they can give priority to the important storylines they're taking care of now in Brightest Day 
then recharge and refocus for their debut on Batman Robin. Then the second part of the email from March explained that there was taking the place of Tomasi and Gleason will be Paul Cornell and Scott McDaniel. And he's had this to say, Paul was an easy, very easy choice. In the relatively short time he's been working with DC, Paul has proven to be a huge asset. He writes fantastic stories and he always makes his deadlines. Plus, he is a big fan of everything that has been going on in the Bat books over the past several years, so we didn't even have to educate him on anything. Made the offer late one week and a full plot in the early next week. So, Paul Cornell will be writing three issues within Batman Robin's series before Tomasi and Gleason come on board. This worries me just because of the way that this came about. It makes it seem like these are just going to be fill-in stories that are going to be of no consequence. But maybe they'll be good fill-in stories. I don't know. But like the way this is, is, oh, we didn't have this ready in time, so we're putting this together. Yeah, I could see that as well. But at least they're replacing them with another team that is – they've proven themselves to be good good creators. Yeah, I agree with that. I like Scott McDaniel. The the thing that kind of concerns me is, so Morrison's on the book for 16 issues. Soon as he leaves the book, what happens? They announce a story, they announce a team, and then less than a couple months later, they say, well, that team's not going to be on the book now. We're going to have somebody else. Now, the other thing is, there's no way with Batman Robin number 17 supposed to hit at the end of November, there was no way that they didn't already have what was going on in the book already done when this announcement came out. It's impossible. They don't have, it's not like the books are put together the week before and then sent to the press. It doesn't work like that. So the fact that a month before the book is supposed to hit stores, they're saying, well, the team is not going to be on the book anymore. That makes me think to myself, they were complaining about having to pull double duty, and they didn't like it, so DC reacted to that by saying, okay, we'll hold the story you had for November and December, and we'll push it back to February, so that way you can have some time to wait. Because realistically, if they finish Brightest Day within the next two months, they'll have like a two-month vacation, because we'll be seeing the books they already did in February and March. My point is, I just find it interesting how Batman and Robin, which was, you know, number one in sales for DC for how many months, is suddenly becoming not so important. Because Grant Morrison were, left. Yeah, they knew that they knew that Gleason and, and Tomasi were going to be on Brightest Day when they announced that they were going to be on Batman and Robin. So why is it that the last minute they're they're just well not last minute but very close to when the book is supposed to come out they're suddenly pulling it and changing things around? Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. All right. So then, uh, in response to the email from Mike Martz, also on October 26th, IGN posted up an interview with Paul Cornell about the announcement that Mike Martz made earlier. So I will read for IGN Comics and Josh will read for Paul Cornell. Let's get a sense of your arc on Batman and Robin. What concepts will be Will you be tackling? Will you be using existing villains or new ones? I've created a new villain. One of the aims of the title being to provide some new bat foes. I'm very proud of him and hope he joins the Pantheon. But to say much more about him would be to give the game away. This is the story of the corpse of one of Bruce Wayne's former girlfriends being stolen from her grave. And Dick and Damien trying to deal with a matter that's very personal to Bruce. To kind of shield him from the fallout of it while Bruce is away in Japan. This is a very dark story in the Grant Morrison tradition with some evil stuff going on under the surface and some mad bubbles on top. 
obviously readers are already aware of the creative team coming after you. Are you framing your art to pave the way for Pete Tomasi in any way, or will your story really operate on its own? It operates on its own, but continues the characterization and keeps the pulse of the title ticking over. The danger with just writing three issues is that one might feel obliged to write a pretty meaningless miniseries, but in the case of this, I felt the best way to serve the title was to write three issues like this was my book, and my best try at the introduction of a major villain, some glimpses of new character dynamics, and a big story arc. Batman and Robin is a big book, and I see no reason to turn the volume down just because I'm only here for three issues. So I take another, back another new villain. I take back my fear that this might be a meaningless villain, even though his second answer seems to indicate that. But uh, this looks like it might be some deep stuff. Corpse of a former girlfriend. Are we talking about Silver Saint Cloud? <laughs> no, that would put it in continuity. I hope not. Yeah, no, it's it's probably uh, Vesper Fairchild, maybe. Oh yeah, not yeah. Imagine that, sir. Huh? What? Someone dressed up in a frightening costume, running around scaring people. What will they think of next? Alright, so the next thing we've got is also from October 26. Comic Book Resources posts up an interview with Chris Robertson. Robertson is writing a two-issue story arc in Superman Batman starting in December. So I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Zach will read for Chris Robertson. When your Superman Batman arc was announced, I think it caught people by surprise. DC 1 Million is a series that... A lot of people enjoyed largely because Grant Morrison's because of Grant Morrison's big ideas for it. But once it wrapped, all those concepts generally stayed on the shelf, with the occasional exception where Grant would use them himself in All Star Superman or what have you. I feel like a lot of people want to stay away from Grant's characters, but I've also gotten the impression that he wants them to be played with and explored more than they tend to be. How did you view those concepts coming into this, and what made you want to dust off that part of the DCU? I've been a fan of Grant's since reading Animal Man and Doom Patrol, and have devoured everything he's written ever since. And I've gotten that same sense from his interviews that you've mentioned. He's created these new concepts and feeds them back into the system for other people to play with, and I've always thought it was a shame more people haven't picked them up and run with them. I wouldn't personally feel confident taking on something he was associated with for a long time or something that felt personal, but the stuff he was doing in DC 1 Million felt like Grant's attempt to enrich the DC universe and to add this whole other layer of possibility to what could be done. Much in the same way that Gardner Fox, in the early 60s, came up with the idea of Earth 2 and suddenly there's this great machine for telling stories. I felt like DC 1 Million had this possibility for things for us. Aside from a brief, a few brief ex- appearances here and there, there were a couple of issues of Tom Payer's Our Man that dealt with these characters in 2001 or so. But besides that and All-Star Superman, no one's really used this stuff. So when Matt Idelson and Will Moss, the editors on Superman Batman, contacted me and asked if I wanted to pitch, the first thing I said was I would love to use the DC 1 million version of Superman and Batman. I thought for sure they'd say no. I was thinking they were saving them for something huge and cool, but they just said, we love those characters. Go! I'm just overjoyed to be playing with the toys, and if Grant should see it, I hope he thinks it's okay. How do you view each character? It's been a while since I've read those issues, but I remember each one million version being like the original hero, but pushed to the extreme. With Superman and Batman, it seems you get more amped up, heightened version of that darkness versus the light take on their personalities that Superman Batman has been known for from the start. There's a bit of that, but also one of the things Grant hinted at, and 
must have been in the notes that he disseminated about the that world. Mark Millar picked up on this in a story for the DC 1 million 80 page giant called Systems Finest, which was the origin of that team. Was this idea that even though they're different in their approaches and methodologies and even motivations, just like the Silver Age Superman and Batman, they're friends at the core. They're very different people, but they both have in common the goal of fighting crime. The one thing I liked the most about the DC 1 million characters was that it was a way for Grant to to make those Silver Age interpretations of those characters cool and contemporary. As much as anything, I think the DC 1 million Superman, for example, is a lot like the old Mort Weisinger era Superman. He could just do anything. He's got so many ridiculous powers that we don't even know what they all are. He's just this fascinating, nice character who's out to benefit other people and have crazy adventures. So there's a bit of the contrast, but it's less in the terms of what their differences are and more in the terms of their commonalities. All right, so that's that interview. So I got to say, in some senses, I'm kind of interested in the Superman Batman. I do find it interesting that, again, the uh, future of Superman Batman is actually what they said it was going to be a year ago, and it took about a year for it to finally start happening. The Superman Batman series deals with things that have happened in the past. Recently, we had that Judd Winnick story deal with uh, Final Crisis and R.I.P. I like this idea, and I have nothing against it. It just seems like DC announced this a really long time ago, and it took a really long time for it to catch up with the series. I concur. I will say, I will say that it sounded like I was like really kind of, I don't know, bragging. Oh, this reminds me of you know, Gardner Fox, but he made Earth 2. Oh, this reminds me of what was there Superman. It's like, oh, yes, I've, I've brought the old issues. Me, this guy. Well, those are the kind of people you want in comics. That's why I think Grant Morrison is so successful, is because he's read so many different things and he pulls these elements that nobody else has really touched on. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah, I was kind of teasing. I guess it found that kind of amusing. I think some of those guys do that too in these interviews. They know that people are reading them, so that if they want to get into this arc, maybe they're mentioning something that people should go look into before they start reading. You know, to yeah. maybe do some research. Yeah. Don't you just love it when he gives them to you gift wrap? All right, so the next thing we've got is October 27th, IGN posts an interview with Tony Daniel. We know Tony Daniel is going to be back on the Batman ongoing in November, and he's going to be pulling double duty once again. So I'll read for IGN, and Donovan will read for Tony Daniel. No doubt seeing his mentor and friend back is a great relief, but how does Bruce's return affect Dick Grayson, not only mentally, but in the terms of his mission? Will Bruce be a big part of his life, or will his global mission really keep him outside of Dick's own trials? Dick, of course, is happy Bruce is back, alive and well. He's given the keys to Gotham. I'd like to really explore how Dick handles the return of Bruce. It can't be a permanent thing, but can Dick just go back to being Nightwing? There's a lot. There's lots of questions weighing on Dick's mind as the series progresses. That part is what I find fun and interesting. Exploring what surely has been has to be a, a complex set of emotions. It's my understanding that you're introducing some new villains into the fold for this story. Can you give some insight to these characters and how they play into this arc? Maybe not so much new, but rather a new way of using someone we haven't seen in a little while. Batman has a rich and long list of foes. I didn't feel the need to make up a new one at this point. Your previous work on Batman involves some iconic baddies. Any future plans to work in some of the more famous rogues? Any in particular you're itching to work with? I'd love to do a Joker or the Scarecrow story. I'd like to do more with the Riddler. I'd also like to tackle Race one day. But I think he's really a Bruce Wayne nemesis as opposed to Dick's. So we'll see. 
So that's the end of that interview. Surprisingly enough, he says he's not going to create new villains, contrary to almost every other interview we've read today. <laughs> Good. Maybe Whoops. we'll actually see some classic villains. I wonder if he's going to continue on that plot line from the end of his run where Bruce found, uh, where, where Dick found, rather, that little uh, flash drive of his parents. Ah! You sunk my battleship! Alright, so the next thing we've got is from October 29th. It was Rama posted an interview with David Finch. Alright, so I will read for News Rama and Josh will read for David Finch. So you're telling Bruce Wayne's adventures in Gotham, kind of an old fashioned, gritty, tough Bruce Wayne back as Batman comic? Yeah! Batman, in my book, is entirely in Gotham City, and yeah, this is the Batman we all know and love, and have for 70 years. Although Batman is spending time all over the world, he still has Gotham City as his home base, and he has so many connections and ties and grudges and friendships in Gotham City, he can't completely walk away. The stories I'm telling are all about relationships and connections he has in Gotham City that he can't walk away from. How does this interact with Dick Grayson being in Gotham City? Even though Dick is here, it's not easy for Bruce to completely walk away. As much as Dick has proven himself, Bruce Wayne is still Bruce Wayne. It's very difficult for Bruce to completely walk away from a fight he's been fighting his whole life. And then there's something in particular that keeps him interested as we kick off the series. Getting back to Batman the Dark Knight comic, will the idea of this being a more traditional Batman story mean we'll see some more of the traditional villains and settings? Yes, absolutely. I think it would totally be fair to call this a traditional Batman story. That doesn't mean it isn't updated. I designed a new Batmobile. I designed a new Batcave, which will actually appear for the first time in Grant's Batman the Return comic. The Batmobile first gets driven in the Dark Knight, and I'm trying to introduce a whole lot of new ideas into this comic. So in that sense, it's not old-fashioned or anything. It exists in a modern era. Is there anything you can tell us about the new Batmobile? It's tied to something I have planned for later in the first arc, so I really want to keep it to myself. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that this is the Batman I grew up with and always wanted to do. It's respectful of what Batman was always intended to be. Ultimately, what I want is to do a traditional Batman story. There are places I like to take the character morally. My interest is exploring Bruce Wayne within his natural setting, within a world of his villains, and the thing that makes him what he is. So while Batman will be marketing the symbol of his chest in Batman Inc., that symbol is not all he is. In The Dark Knight, you'll see the man behind the symbol. There's a very strong theme to this book, and there always has been, and that's important to me. All right, so that's that interview. It seems like David Finch is being very cryptic about what we're going to be reading inside of the pages of Batman The Dark Knight. (laughs) But also at the same time, it almost feels as if this book is something that was... In my opinion, just another Batman Confidential that has very small little connections to what's actually going on. Because if you notice, every time they talk about Dick being inside of Gotham City and the fact that Dick has given has been given permission to be in charge of Gotham City as Batman travels around the world, why is it that Batman still needs to be in Gotham City? Why does Batman still need to be driving around the Batmobile in Gotham City if his whole mission is to go around the world and create these you know different so-called franchises for batman why is it that this book needs to happen it just doesn't make any sense to me so the only reason i can think is david finch got hired by dc comics as an exclusive and he said to them okay so here's this idea i have it's bruce wayne as batman good stories what do you think and they're like you're david finch we just paid you a good chunk of money so yeah 
and that, and that's and that's what's going on. And they they maybe changed a couple little things here and there to incorporate what's happening within the giant Batman universe in order to keep it still within continuity and not make it one of those Batman Confidential type books. The thing that I have a problem with that is there's a point in time where it just is going to get too convoluted. These interviews have been done, and he's gone on and on and on and said. Batman is Batman. He's the Batman we all know. He's the Batman we, we've all grown up with. Or He's the Batman who's been around for 70 years. It's starting to feel like I've heard this discussion before, only it wasn't coming from a comic artist. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I am completely confused by what he's saying. This new Batmobile thing is... I don't know what that's all about. But if if it's good, I you know what? Then it's good. I'm not going to complain about it. We wouldn't want our little caged rodent to suffocate, so we'll just punch some <laughs> Alright, so the next thing we've got is also from October 29th, Newsrama posted up a video interview on their site, and the interview was done with Neil Adams. Adam right. talked about a number of different things related to the series Batman Odyssey. Uh, as far as some of the highlights, Adam said that the series was originally slated to be 12 issues, and one more issue has been added to make it 13. The extra issue was added to make the ending better. Adam said that the very first page of the very first issue, Bruce is talking to someone and telling the story that we read throughout the series. At the end of issue 13, it will be revealed who Bruce is talking to. Possible candidates that have already been eliminated are Alfred, Robin, Lois Lane, Vicki Vale, or any other woman. Uh, there are a number of Easter eggs that are in every issue leading to the reveal. Adams also stated that if you follow the story, it will be obvious who the person Bruce is talking to. Okay, so... Y'all watch that, right? My prediction is that we're talking to Clark Kent because I don't really understand who else he would be talking to. And I get this weird thought. I don't know if this is actually how it play out, but... So Clark Kent has worked with Batman in the past, and nothing serious, just, yeah, okay, I fly over to Gotham City and help him out every once in a while. But then... Superman decides, you know what, this guy's something. You know, maybe I should start working with this guy a little bit more. And that's what ends up happening. He uh, approaches Bruce and says, well, tell me a little bit more about how you got started in all this. And, you know, maybe we can have a, a good partnership going on or something. Something like that. Because otherwise, I don't even understand why Bruce would be telling him this story. I would also say that if anybody is listening to Bruce and they could follow him explaining this story, God bless them. God bless them. Because I would not be able to follow anybody explaining this story. If that was the case, though, like it would, it would honestly be better. Like That's your idea. That's better than what the actual story is. I mean, And after Superman hears the whole story, he has to go to Arkham Asylum. Exactly. That's why, that's why the art is so good sometimes, because of, his, of Superman's super imagination. Alright, so the last thing we've got for news is from also from October 29th, IGN posted an interview with Scott Snyder. Snyder obviously is doing a ton of interviews for his upcoming run on Detective Comics, so let's go over the highlights. I will read for IGN Comics, and Zach will read for Scott Snyder. You said you plan on spending a lot of time with Dick outside the cowl. Do you plan on giving Dick a new status quo as far as his civilian life is concerned? Will he fit into the Gotham landscape? That's another good question. The way I'm doing it, I'm not giving him so much a new job like when he was a cop in Bloodhaven. But one of the developments I can tell you about now, which I'm excited about, occurs in the first issue, Detective 871. Wayne Industries is trying to create a closer bond with the GCPD. And because everything going on in Batman Inc. with Bruce publicly supporting the idea of Batman, the GCPD gets pretty pissed. 
they're wondering, well, what about us? So in this arc, in this whole run, one of the central locations is going to be this new crime lab that Wayne Enterprises opens for the GCPD. It's a high-tech lab where they send their evidence. So what happens to Dick is he really becomes the liaison to the GCPD and builds a strong relationship with Gordon. It's not so much that I'm trying to create a new public identity for him in the social circles. It's more that I'm trying to build the relationships he's established in Gotham in ways that make it impossible for him to be as circus-like as he's been in the past and being able to pick up stakes and leave. His relationship with Barbara, his relationship with Jim Gordon, and his relationship with the crime world in Gotham make him learn things about the city. That identity of Dick Grayson as someone who is publicly visible helps his Gotham friends in a way that makes Gotham his city and its people his people in a way where he can't just leave and go somewhere else. It becomes almost an official job for him being the liaison with the GCPD. One of the things I had the most fun writing was a scene where he talks to Tim later on and Tim is essentially saying Dick doesn't have a job in Wayne Industries and it's time for him to have some kind of a public face. It's also been a lot of fun dealing with Dick in that way. It's nice to have a Batman that cracks jokes. What kind of interplay will there be between the main feature and the Gordon backup? It will be very interactive. Sometimes Gordon will walk off the pages of the feature and then show up in the backup. Sometimes the backup will show you something you didn't notice in the feature. I thought it would be a really fun way of dealing with the format. As the backup moves forward, you'll see more of Gordon being troubled by what's going on in those pages in the feature. The only thing that I have to say about this interview is, well, I have two things. The first thing is, I think it's a cool idea to make Dick the liaison between the GCPD and Wayne Industries, considering, one, he needs to have some kind of tie to Wayne Industries because he's part of the Wayne family, but on top of that, make him a liaison to a police department, which he didn't work at the GCPD, but he was a police officer at one time in Bloodhaven. I think that is a very unique twist, and I think it's a really cool idea. One of the things I think has been lacking severely in the last couple of years is Dick having a civilian slash personal life. I don't think it's really been that great, and I don't think they've depicted it very well over the last few years. It's been recently, I am Batman, that's what I need to do, and I need to make sure that this crazy kid that's my sidekick doesn't bite somebody. With that, I think this is going to be a unique twist that is going to be very interesting. The other thing I have to say is, I don't understand why still, well after the announcement that the backup co-features are not going to be in the books after December, why he is still answering questions about the backups as if it will continue on past when the backups are no longer in the book. Unless these interviews were done like way long ago and like IGN is just posting them now, which is really annoying if that's the case, but they're not the only ones. Snyder's been interviewed by tons of different comic resources, Newsarama, IGN. He's been interviewed by them all, sometimes multiple times, and every single time they talk about the co-feature, he talks about it like it's going to happen. Like it's never like there was an announcement that's been announced that co-features are not going to be in books anymore. How can the co-feature be interactive with the main feature in the book if the co-feature is not even in the book? Well, it's yeah, it is funny. He says in this interview, as the backup moves forward, as the backup moves forward, two issues. I mean, what? Yeah, it, it's not like we're going to get a whole lot of development with this story, which is unfortunate because he seems like he had a plan in place to how to deal with that format. Everything that I saw for the Gordon co-feature, except for the art, I'm not a big fan of the art style, but I appreciate it. I just not a, I'm not a big fan. But everything that I saw and heard about the co-feature seemed really good. And honestly, I say, I say I'll say the same thing about the Ragman. Everything that I've heard and seen about the Ragman co-feature is the same thing. I'm actually excited about both of those. I find it interesting that the first time I'm excited about a co-feature, 
they're no longer going to be happening after only getting two issues. I find that really disturbing considering the whole point of the co-feature in the beginning was to make these lesser known characters or not as prominent characters, I should say, give them a voice inside of the books without being a main feature, without having their own series. And I think Ragman and Gordon are the perfect characters. I think Gordon could have been the main, the co-feature within Streets of Gotham for a really long time. And I think that was a huge fail on DC Comics part by not doing that. I think having Manhunter in it was a good idea for the first uh, couple I- couple issues with her becoming the district attorney of Gotham City and incorporating elements from Birds of Prey into it. But as soon as they brought in Jane Doe and it became this giant current district attorney versus old ex-district attorney Harvey Dent, it just got ridiculously stupid. Then it got really drawn out too, like they were just trying to make it last as long as it could. The same thing I'll say about the question thing. I think it was ridiculous. The only reason the question was in the book was because the question and Batwoman had been linked together and Batwoman was the main feature and Greg Rucka was writing both of them. I think they were both horrible co-features. And I was never excited about them at all. This I'm actually excited about, and now it's not going to happen. Now, I'm not saying I want to pay $3.99 to read that co-feature. I'm saying if they have this great idea in place, they need to make sure that whatever they do, no matter what it is, it's done correctly so that when they release it, it's not just some piece of junk that's going to sit on a shelf and no one's ever going to look at it. Dustin speaks for all of us. home? <laughs> Listen, Boopsy, even though you never call and never write, I still got a soft spot for you. Alright, so that's all of the news we've got. We're going to get into our comic reviews. We've got ten books to cover, which is a decent amount, but we're going to try to get through them as quickly but efficiently as possible. So we're going to start off with our very first one we've got, which is Azrael number 13. Azrael number 13, written by David Hine, illustrated by Gilliam March. The conclusion to the Crusader storyline, this it begins in uh, Castle Grief in Scotland. As we cut into the Crusader flaying alive with Father Grief, I believe, and Michael Lane and Father Dare, you know, they're talking about, like, Michael Lane's like, you know, we should stop him. And Father Dare's like, well, this is what we gotta, we gotta just stand by and watch. Didn't Jesus stand by and watch? I see you got crucified. This issue is titled Killer of Saints, Part 4. As Father Grief continues to be tortured, Father Day leads him, leads Michael into a part of the cathedral where we see a statue of Mary Magdalene and says that while Mary Magdalene has been incorrectly portrayed as a prostitute, because of that controversy and her connection to Jesus, they created asylums called the Magdalene Laundries where women who had children out of wedlock or even was attracted to a man that wasn't their husband have been sent into basically slavery for years to wash away their guilt. This, le- this also leads to a compartment in the back of the Magdalene statue where Father Day looks into it and sees the face of what he prefers to be the actual face of Jesus Christ. Cut to Crusader who's finished flaying alive the father and asks him where the shroud is. And the shroud is apparently what the face of Jesus Christ is. Michael Lane still doubts this, but knows his. not only does he doubt what, what he's being told, but he's doubting that he's the right person to actually stop the Crusader, since the Crusader can easily kill him. The Crusader shows up with, a, with Father Grief, who is carrying his own skin, and reassures Michael Lane that he, he is God's warrior. Michael starts hearing voices that tells him to, to give the Crusader the test of swords, and if the swords do not harm him, that means that the Crusader is on God's side. If they do harm him, they'll show him the true way. Michael stabs 
the crusader with these swords and the crusader sees a very fiery image of it's i don't even know what to describe it but some some sort of demon in a priest in priest robes and everything and he says that michael lane is now god's true warrior with with this he is he just walks off he doesn't die he just walks off into the rain before day and michael leave the the dying father grieved tells michael in private that the whole conspiracy was to hide the was to hide the suit of sorrows as the suit of sorrows is destined for the, the, the sired children of both Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene, and that the suit was made for the sins of Jesus Christ, which Michael now wears, hinting that Michael is a descendant of Jesus Christ. And that ends that storyline as well as issue 13. All right, so as rule number 13, now I'm going to go and do something that probably nobody ever saw coming. To be completely honest, Asriel, for the last good chunk of issues, I've kind of just been going through very quickly, not really paying attention to the story. For the most part, have thought to myself, wow, this is just the same old crap that we had last month. This is dumb. I'm not going to spend my time getting into this. Well, this month I did something different. I, I took the time to actually read through it because I really wanted to see if it is as bad as it once was. Uh, 13 issues is a, is, is a decent amount of issues. This series has been around for over a year now. So I wanted to see if 13 issues in, if it's still as bad as it was back at issue number one. It's not. It's not at all, actually. I actually found this series to be quite enjoyable. And I say that, and I'm not saying that sarcastically at all. I, I thought this was interesting. You have to look past the fact that this has very little to do with Batman. You have to look past the fact that this is very, very religion heavy and if you look past both of those things it's actually quite enjoyable the fact that we have a villain who sliced somebody up and i mean they did everything but show it that was pretty cool you don't see that happen every day i actually think the element of the uh, the religion element is actually okay and it adds a little bit of interest to it i don't know where this series is going to continue to go because this issue was the end of that story arc and I don't know where they're going to go from here. There is talk that Asriel's going to get involved with Batman Inc. Or whether or not he's not going to be involved with Batman Inc. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. The one thing that I had a problem with was that they made it seem as if this character, the Crusader, died. I would assume he's not actually dead just based on the fact that what was the point of creating this character only to kill him off after a couple issues. That doesn't happen very often. That is the only thing that I have a problem with. The fact that we're made to believe that he's dead, and he's probably not actually dead, kind of is an annoying aspect to me. With that, I'm actually going to give this 3 out of 5 batterings. I'm still going to give it 1 out of 5 batterings. This whole thing, oh, now he's a descendant of Jesus Christ. I mean, we're going straight from Da Vinci Code here, and I'm not sensitive about religious stuff or whatever. It's just, I'm really not sure if this comic is, I don't know, if it's done right and done well, I wouldn't mind it, but this, it, it's still just weird to me, and it's still just not written well. And I mean, you can't even tell if, what, did the people die, or did they just walk away? It's it's still confusing, so I'm giving it one out of five batterings. First off, I thought Gilliam Arch, his artwork is really good here. I'm not generally a huge fan of his, but the last few issues, I think he's he's impressed me quite a bit with his work here. As for the story, I think it's interesting. I'm kind of agreement with Josh. I'm not I'm not sensitive about all about religious issues, and I think the the concept it's interesting, but I feel like it's a little over the heads of these creators and this book itself. I don't, um, you know, I like reading fiction that, that delves into religion. 
but I don't know if this book is really it's appropriate for it to be de- delving into these huge ideas in the way that it is. And the one problem I do have is this whole descendant of Christ thing. It fear I'm I fear that this is going to become the focal point of this book, and that's not what I that's not really what I want. I thought that you know he's going back to Gotham, and that Azrael was now going to start to become much more rooted within the Batman universe. And now it seems like this could be going in a completely different direction. But I can go along with it. And I thought that this was this was an interesting read. So I'll give this two and a half out of five batterings. The art was amazing. I I really love the art. I'm a fan of Gillian March. He actually I think he actually outdid himself in from the past. His stuff in the past. I think that uh there are some panels where Azrael himself looked pretty cool, and I thought that he had a really nice detail, especially that splash page with whatever the Crusader sees as he gets stabbed. It looked like a, a, a Disturbia cover drawn by Todd McFarlane or something, I don't know, but it was really, really cool. And um, I think that the art was very appropriate for the story. The writing was awful. I'm going to go four for four here. I'm not, I am religious, but I am not offended that easily by, you know, st- religion being dealt in this way. It's just the fact that it's not being written very well whatsoever. The scene where Father Day pops up and he sees the face of Jesus Christ. I mean, what, what is that picture? I mean, did someone take his picture with a digital camera or whatever? Did someone paint him? If this is really what's going to happen, there's absolutely no way the story can, the, the comic can continue and just even ignore the story as just like a one-off four-part. I mean, you have to, you have to expand on this. You can't just end the story by hinting that Michael Lane may be a descendant of Jesus Christ. And just, you know, go business as usual. Like, nothing this story, this continuity and this comic itself can ever do will ever be as more possibly engaging or important as that. And if that's the case, it's made faulty by the fact that they said that they, in this continuity, Jesus Christ wasn't the true Savior, Son of God. So what does it matter that he has descendants? I mean, that's, that, that in itself is Ill, irrelevant. So the big twist at the end falls on his face due to the, the plot incongruities it had two issues back. So this whole storyline was you know just shooting for the trees but it, it misses and misses left and right and as good as the art is and ambitious as the storyline is it's just awful i will i will agree it's interesting but the way it's done is so haphazard so i'm giving this zero out of five batterings and wesley on the website gave as number 13 three out of five batterings so that is going to give as number 13 two and a half out of five batterings tell me something why were you so sure those voices weren't coming from you? Well, first, I know I'm not psychotic. I hope your other reason is more convincing. And second, the voice kept calling me Bruce. In my mind, that's not what I call myself. What do you call yourself? Oh, yeah. I suppose you would. But that's my name now. Hmm. Tell that to my subconscious. Moving into our next book, Batman Beyond number 5. We start off with Dr. Reed, who is uh, trying to get to the police station, who she knows is being followed by somebody from Cadmus Labs. As it turns out, the person that is following her is named Blaine Emick, and he is the head of uh, external security, which means he is basically there to get Dr. Reed back to Cadmus Labs. Dr. Reed somehow escapes the entire time Barbara Gordon's hearing this happen and says, we need to get somebody over there now to pick up this Dr. Reed. Then we cut to Batman, who has been stabbed by the Dick Grayson character. He leaves him alive and leaves. Catwoman appears and Catwoman has an exchange with Bruce Wayne over the comm unit. And the way it works is Bruce tells her, you are going to let this man die if you don't help him, so you need to help him. So, lo and behold, now Batman has a Catwoman. She can 
actually played the role of Catwoman that Selina Kyle did for Bruce Wayne. Back at the Batcave, Bruce Wayne is attacked by the robot Batbots, and then we go back to Dr. Reed, who has been subdued by the external security when out of nowhere someone appears, who turns out to be none other than Dick Grayson. By the way, if you haven't been following along, you may try to wonder why exactly there's two Dick Graysons. Well, turns out Dick Grayson was actually cloned by Cadmus Labs because uh, Cadmus Labs was concerned that Gotham must always have a Batman, so not only did they put the Terry McGinnis thing into effect, but they also tried to clone Dick Grayson, knowing that Dick Grayson would eventually become Batman. Turns out the uh, clone Dick Grayson is convinced that he would be a better Batman now in current times and is trying to eliminate Batman Beyond because he believes he is the true Batman that needs to save Gotham. There's actually two Dick Graysons running around Gotham City right now, and what's quite amusing about this is we actually should have caught on to that the last issue because Dick Grayson is missing an eye and the clone one is not. With that being said, we go back to the Batcave where Terry McGinnis comes back stabbed. Bruce exchanges a bunch of words thinking Terry has passed out about how good of a soldier he is. Terry hears the entire thing and uh, the issue ends with the clone Dick Grayson stating that he has the Batbots and tons of explosive devices that he stole from Mad Stan to create an earthquake in Gotham City, such as what we had in the past, as we know in Catechism. And Bruce says he's right at the quake's epicenter and he has way too many explosives that he could do something completely horrible to level the entire Gotham City. That's Batman Beyond number five. Alright, so overall I think this issue is pretty good. I really like the element of bringing Catwoman into the mix as far as the what Catwoman has always been to Batman. I think that was really cool. Despite the fact that this Catwoman has nothing to do with Selina Kyle, it is interesting to see how it could actually play out. And the fact that we know it's going to be an ongoing, I think that's something that can really be explored. I think it was kind of interesting to see Bruce kind of humble himself and say the, all those comments about Terry about how good of a soldier he is and how he never says it because he thought Terry was unconscious. I think it was a classic moment almost with the fact that Terry's like, well, I, you know, I thank you. I, I appreciate all those comments and Bruce kind of being taken aback by it. And instead of being typical Bruce Wayne and saying, what, did you hear everything? And he's like, yeah, I, uh, you're a big softie. And he's like, well, whatever you did here, it's true. I thought that was that was really cool. You don't see Bruce Wayne really get that kind of emotional ever. So I thought that was quite interesting. The continuation of adding all the different elements that have already happened in Batman Beyond and DC Comics continuity, including Mad Stan from Batman Beyond, including uh, finding out exactly how this clone got created. We also found out that Dr. Reed is actually a descendant of Tommy Elliot, which leads us to believe that at some point Tommy Elliot had a child, possibly a wife. Could have been Peyton Riley, could have been somebody else. That's something that we'll find out in the future. But I think it was a pretty good issue. Three and a half out of five batterings. I like this uh, better than I've liked an Adam Beechin book in a while. We were all complaining uh, about the Dick Grayson reveal before because, well, the fight was taking place at the same time as Dick Grayson was somewhere. So now there's two Dick Graysons and uh, what they're doing with Catwoman. It's 
getting a little intriguing, and I'm actually finding myself more interested in the Batman Beyond universe than I was when issue one began, so might even be encouraging me to give the ongoing a try. And it's an ongoing by Beechin, which is no easy feat, so I'm going to give it three out of five batterings. I also really like this issue, and I thought Ryan Benjamin, this was the strongest artwork he's done so far. There were some images where he was penciling old Bruce, and it really made me think back to Frank Miller's style of artwork, which I thought was, I really liked. I thought there was some really good character development here that needed to happen in regards to Catwoman, with the scene with her interacting with Bruce in order to save Terry's life. And I also liked the softer side of Bruce scene because that was very that was very classic. The Cabinet Labs plot point is finally addressed, and that all ties in with the clone, and everything makes a hell of a lot more sense now. But I think Adam Beechin is telling a pretty good story, and, and I'm excited to see the conclusion of the miniseries, and then I'm excited to start reading the ongoing. I'll give this four out of five batterings. Yeah, I think this is like the, the possibly the best issue so far. Clearly, I was really annoyed when it, when it said Dick Grayson was going to be a villain last issue. So now that that's all, that's that's all nice. I, I liked I liked I liked some scenes like how uh, the Dick Grayson clone was like like miming over Terry and saying, "Oh, Mad Stan and Stalker, if they weren't dead, I'm sure they'd kill you now, but I won't." I thought that was kind of kind of twisted. No, it's nice. Even though I wish that's how they're dead. Um, I also like the scene with Terry. Uh, in the Batcave with Bruce and Bruce kind of, you know, saying what a good guy he is and Terry here and getting Bruce not denying it. That was, that was some good character development. And I agree that the art's pretty good all around. I, I, I really enjoyed this issue, but I don't have that much to add on to it. So I'll give this a solid three out of five batterings. That's going to give Batman Beyond number five three out of five batterings. Every punk in this town is scared stiff. They say he can't be killed. They say he drinks blood. It's going to take us into our next book, Bruce Wayne, The Road Home, Catwoman. This issue begins. Selina Kyle is at a gala accompanied by Poison Ivy, who nobody seems to notice that it's Poison Ivy. They're spying on Vicky Vale and wondering what kind of crazy shenanigans she's getting into by talking to the criminal underworld. Apparently, some contact within Wayne Industries told Selena Kyle to tail Vicky Vale because, you know, she might know too much. One of the items being auctioned is a MacGuffin, which makes uh, Selena Kyle have a flashback to trying to steal said MacGuffin and, Bat- and one of her early encounters with Batman and how he arrested her. And she said, next time, I'll steal your hearts. Because, yes, that motif is going to come back later. Back to present day, Harley Quinn comes in to the gala and frees the hyenas who are being auctioned off. We get the little gag where she says, you animals. And you think she's talking to the people, but nope, she was actually talking to the animals. This is too much shenanigans for Vicky Vale, so she leaves, which means that Selena's mission is a little compromised. So Vicky Vale gets a call at her apartment to meet her contact over at a diner because the contact didn't want to meet her at the gala when all the animal stuff was going on. So Selena goes to the empty apartment and looks at Vicky Vale's little wall of who everyone is and then sees that behind that wall there's another hidden wall where she's looking at the criminal underworld, and Selena's like, oh, this isn't good. So she meets at a nearby rooftop and talks to her contact, who turns out to be the insider, who, as we know, is Bruce. And Selena gives the insider the business, saying, come on, you know, you can't do this. You, we got to do something about this girl. She's getting involved in some serious stuff. I'm trying to remember how they say it, but somehow Stolen Hearts 
gets brought up into the conversation and that makes Selena realize stolen heart my heart was stolen and that heart of hush story oh my god this is Bruce yeah they kind of hug for a little bit but then of course insider disappears and then there's a weird splash page of of the Gotham City sirens with the MacGuffin in like some tropical setting set to Bruce Wayne's white notebook being like well I don't like who <laughs> Selena's hang- I don't like who Selena's hanging out with but she seems to be doing okay and that's the end of Bruce Wayne wrote home Catwoman I this reminded me a lot of Gotham City Sirens uh, for the obvious reasons of we had Harley, Poison Ivy, and Catwoman all inside the the book. I don't really think there was a lot that came out of this other than we saw a little touching moment where Catwoman was like, "Oh, Bruce," and I thought that was kind of kind of interesting because I mean, if anybody really deserves to know Bruce Wayne's back, it'd be Selena Kyle because. Well, crap, Selena Kyle was saved by Bruce Wayne, had all this stuff happen, and then Bruce died. For an emotional aspect, I think that's interesting. Other than that, the book really just didn't really do anything for me, so I'm going to give it uh, one and a half out of five batterings. This was a little more interesting. It seems to be one of the cases with these return home books that we get the corny flashback or whatever, but I do like how they walk through the last year of Selena's life with the whole hush stealing her yeah. heart, and that was the last time she saw Bruce, and he gave her doing? that whole confession what? of how he loved her, and yeah, now he was gone. There was some stupid stuff in there, like Poison Ivy yelling that, that a guy was a murderer because he handed her a flower, and the fact that nobody noticed that she was Poison Ivy because, you know, she had green skin. And then the last splash page was just really out of nowhere. You go from this emotional moment at nighttime on a rooftop with Bruce and Selena, and then all of a sudden, like, oh, they're on a tropical Hawaiian <laughs> burning pl- A plane falling, crashing in the background for no reason. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't understand that. Yeah, I did like the art, though, and I liked um, kind of getting inside Selena's head. And it is funny how Selena's trying to save Vicky Vale because there was that uh, story in the 70s where Selena finds out that Vicky's dating Bruce and she tries to kill both of them by, like, cutting the brakes on their car. Nice that Selena's looking out for her now. Uh, I like the moment with Insider and Catwoman at all. I think it was cut a little bit too short because, you know, Bruce is a jerk. I mean, hey, uh, she just found out that you're back. Let her kind of have a moment here. But, oh, no, 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 go ahead and ditch her again. That's not going to give her emotional issues. This was a more enjoyable Road Home book, though. I'm going to give it four out of five batterings. As mentioned before, to me, this might as well have been called Bruce Wayne, The Road Home, Gotham City Sirens. I just thought this was extremely average. This Vicki Vale storyline crossing over into all of these issues is just making some of these stories so frustrating for me because I just don't care about her little plan to exploit the Bat family. I really don't have a whole lot to say with, about this. It was just really average story, average artwork. I, I just found it very boring. Like, I was very bored reading this issue. So I'll give it one out of five batterings. Yeah, I don't like this issue much either. Um, it's just, yeah, Gotham City Sirens, it's basically that. I mean, you have the whole Harley and Ivy thing, which makes sense if this is about Selena, because that's who she's been crashing with lately. But it's like, it's, I don't know, it's some parts are really dumb, like the whole Ivy getting mad at the guy, here's a flower, oh, you murdered, like, yeah, because that's never happened to her before. You know? The scenes with Vicky Vale, I thought were just, it seemed like they were padding, at least with the other issues, she was going out with other people, or she was meeting other people like Alfred or, or Barbara Gordon, and there was some incremental building up with that with that storyline. This one, she's just kind of like standing around for several pages, or several panels at least. I did like the end scene with um, Bruce and Selena. I kind of like how that was done because it was very, uh, it's very much like the Batman movies of the '90s where they don't actually say anything, but they realize that him and the love interest know he's Batman. And the the splash page with the Insider and Catwoman looked like it was trying to ape the splash page with Batman and Catwoman kissing from Hush. So I thought that was actually really kind of cool. I actually really didn't like the art 
or I didn't care for because I didn't like the, their facial expressions. It seemed like there was there was there were two static facial expressions, and also the body language was very stiff. I also thought it it just didn't look very natural all over, especially with the splash page at the end when they're all like smiling at the camera or whatever. I thought that was kind of dumb. So yeah, this was I thought this was rather subpar. So I'll give this two out of five batterings. So that is going to give Bruce Wayne, The Road Home, Catwoman a total of two out of five batarangs. Watch yourselves, man. These guys are crazy. Moving into our next book, which is Bruce Wayne, The Road Home, Commissioner Gordon. Bruce Wayne, The Road Home, Commissioner Gordon, written by Adam Beechin, artwork by Simon Kudransky. The issue opens with Commissioner Gordon trying to protect Vicki Vale from some underground criminals who have heard that Vale knows the identities of all the Bat family members. So Gordon and another cop are moving Vale through this hotel trying to protect her. We then flash back to a few hours before to Oracle who finds the insider has broken into her headquarters. However, Oracle knows this is Bruce and he instructs her with some orders. We then cut to Penguin who is being told about Vale's info on the Bat family and decides to send new recruits to do some snooping. At the hotel, we see Gordon and a group of detectives securing Vale's room. While in the hotel, Vale continues to get information from Gordon about Batman, but he doesn't budge. Then the power goes out, and the cops position themselves around the door. However, a corrupt detective takes a gun to Gordon's head. Luckily, Gordon is able to stop him, but just then the two recruits come bursting into the door. As the villains attack the cops, the insider is informed by Oracle about the situation. Gordon is able to fight them off and then escape. However, there is no elevators or stairs on that side of the building. They use the fire escape to go down to the floor below. Unfortunately, the villains are aware of this and they are meeting up with them when the insider comes swooping in and makes quick work of the two villains. They are rescued, and when the cops are transporting Vicky Vale to a new location, she is able to ditch them. Oracle is informing the insider of this, as well as the underground learned of Vale's knowledge from a company that is a front of Ra's al Ghul's. We then cut to Gordon meeting with the insider about Vale's escape. Apparently, the insider told Gordon to let her escape, because whether she knows it or not, she will lead him to the people responsible. And that is to be continued in Bruce Wayne, the own home Oracle. Alright, so this book, I thought for the most part it was pretty good. I don't really have any major complaints. I don't really think the art... The art is not something that I enjoy, but... Again, I can appreciate it for what it is. It gave a lot of insight into Commissioner Gordon and, like, what he thinks. This, I really feel, was, like, the turning point with the Vicky Vale story, though. There was a lot of things that was happening previously with the Vicky Vale, where even if we look back in the first three issues of The Road Home, Batman, Robin, Red Robin, and Batgirl, we look at those three issues... There was like a couple pages that talked about what was going on with Vicky Vale. This story had Vicky Vale right in the middle of what was going on inside the story. And as we continue the reviews, you'll see that more. So this story was more about Vicky Vale and Vicky Vale dealing with Commissioner Gordon. And then at the same time, with Bruce Wayne dealing with Commissioner Gordon as well. This was the book I was referring to when I talked about them adding new characters. The other thing that's interesting is the fact that the artist decided to make... Penguin look like Danny DeVito from Batman Returns. I don't think there's something directly wrong with that, but at the same time, that's not the type of Penguin I I think of when I think of Penguin. But, hey, you know, everybody has their different opinions with Penguin. They did create two new villains, which who knows if we'll ever see them again. Chances are we probably won't. But uh, this is what I'm talking about. This is why I believe that the sudden surge of these supporting characters is becoming just more and more a run-of-the-mill, well, it just happens, so let's just keep doing it. So I'm going to give it two and a half out of five batterings. I liked the art a lot better than this. I thought it fit the tone of the story. We're getting some 
problems with writers communicating with each other because what happens in here and something that's going to happen in uh, Road Home Oracle doesn't really fit. I wish that there'd be more communication between these Road Home books. It's kind of weird how at the beginning Vale's like, oh, the god, the, you know, the police department sucks, and at the end she's like, actually, you guys are all right. So yay for, I guess, character development and the moral of the story that the Gotham City Police Department is all right. I would have preferred if this would have focused more on Gordon and his reaction to, you know, the old Batman's gone. Now that now that there's a new Batman and this old Batman may possibly be back and how he's piecing it all together. That would have been better. Instead, this was mostly the road home Vicky Vale. So I feel that it's kind of mistitled. So I'm giving it about two and a half out of five batterings. I thought that this was a solid issue, and it was the first Road Home book where all of a sudden I started to become actually interested in the Vicky Vale plotline. As mentioned, I did like the Penguin's involvement, and I liked kind of the idea of the entire underground coming after. But I really enjoy this issue because it is really – it does focus on in the narrative about why Gordon is so important. I thought the issue did a, a pretty good job of showcasing that. And I also thought the artwork was really good. I really loved the dark and gray tone that it presented, and I thought it meshed extremely well with the story that was presented. However, at times, the colors were a bit too dark, and it made some of the panels hard for me. To, I, I had trouble making out what was going on in some of these panels, and it caused some confusion for me at times. But I'll give it three out of five batterings. Okay, I'm a little less favorable with this issue because uh, I agree that um, it it does a very good thing by having the Vicky Vale thing, Vicky Vale subplot up up front. So you're really forced to pay attention to it, and that's probably why. Uh, I mean, that's, that's why I'm assuming that Zach found it interesting where he did in the last issue. I thought the art was hit or miss. I thought it was some 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 of the panels were kind of cool the way they had uh, Insider near the middle of the end. I didn't care for how they did Gordon. He, Gordon looks like a leprechaun. Either that or the, the guy. Based him off of John Cleese or something. I mean, I, I thought Gordon looked too weird. Uh, Vicky Vale looked really frumpy and just completely anathema to what she has, she's looked in the past. I mean, I don't know if she's supposed to be like a, like a glamour girl or anything, but I assume she's supposed to be moderately attractive. And here she looks like she's like a huge owner of cats or whatever. I don't know. I also agree that, you know, this was a serious misnomer with the title. I mean, it was the road home Commissioner Gordon. That does not mean we get the Commissioner Gordon from someone else's perspective. And I thought it was really dumb how they had Vicky Vale completely slag on Christopher Gordon, who is a legendary police officer, especially in Gotham City. The idea that she thinks, oh, well, Gordon, all he does is rely on Batman. He's totally worthless. And then at the end, well, I guess you're kind of a good cop after all. No, I thought that was stupid. I liked the scene at the end with the insider and Gordon, but I just wish it was all, I wish this whole thing was from Gordon's perspective. I wish we could get some of Gordon's inner thought bubbles or thought uh, captures or something. So I'm giving this uh, a lower grade than the rest of you guys and give this a two out of five batteries. All right, so that's going to give Bruce Wayne the road home, Commissioner Gordon, two and a half out of five battering. To the Batmobile. Let's go. Let's move into our next one. Okay, well, remember how uh, the Insider and Oracle were talking over the frequency last issue? Well, they do it again, and Oracle's like, wait a minute. How did you just happen to my frequency now for the first time ever? Oh, well, actually, you know, I'm really good with hacking in this stuff. So forget about the fact that he did last issue. Excuse me. It was actually the opposite. It's Oracle that hacks in the insider's frequency. Excuse me. But there's some men that are after Vicky Vale. Oracle communicates with insider through his frequency. 
and is like, okay, so we got to get the situation. And he tells her to contact some of the birds of prey and that he trusts her to contact the right ones. Meanwhile, Vicky Vale is acting like a spoiled brat, ignorant of the fact that everyone is trying to save her life. While Insider tells her, I told you to get down. I got this. We get some of these road home flashbacks. And this time, it's Barbara after she got shot. Bruce Wayne comes in with some flowers, and she Barbara apparently doesn't like flowers, and she wants to feel sorry for herself. So Bruce Wayne smashes the flowers against the wall. It's like, there, you happy now? Then he yells at her to get herself together. And then we get a flash forward of Barbara training and Bab showing Bruce the clock tower for the first time and Bruce being impressed. Because this is Road Home Oracle, that means that this is going to have very little to do with Oracle because most of the action sequences are coming from Barbara calling the birds and some other people that are associated with the birds like Batgirl and them fighting the ninjas, complete with awesome dialogue by Hawk going, say goodnight, you tool. So most of those guys are taken care of, but Vicky Vale, uh, she's running away with Insider, who's injured in an explosion, so she's on her own. So she goes to a payphone to call Alfred for help, but we get the whole uh, cliche cliffhanger where somebody attacks her in the phone booth and then Alfred's like, Vicky, Vicky, and then you see the cliffhanger shot of the phone hanging off of the cord because Vicky's been captured. But in between that, we do get Oracle revealing, by the way, I know that you're Bruce Wayne. How did you know? And she's like, because I'm smart and because I've been trained by awesome people. So Vicky's captured. Oracle knows that Bruce is back. That's the end of Road Home Oracle. With this one, I found it a little bit better than the Commissioner Gordon one, specifically because there was a lot more elements that were involved in this. Now, there's two things that I found interesting. One, despite the fact that Oracle is in the Birds of Prey, this was not like we had with the Catwoman one, where it seemed like it should have been Road Home, Gotham City Sirens. This didn't seem like it should have been Road Home, Birds of Prey. This was straight Oracle. Yes, they incorporated some people from the Birds of Prey, but they also included other people. The way they did that and made it work was by making it so that the people that they were including were people that were inside the network, not just the Birds of Prey. Batgirl is obviously linked to Oracle very well. Hawk and Dove are part of Birds of Prey, but then they also included Man Bat and Ragman. I like the inclusion of Ragman. We'll get more into that when we talk about Ragman Sue Souls. I think this was good because not only did it involve Oracle, but Batman also got to see some of the other people that are currently involved with things with inside of the confines of Gotham City. The flashback I did find a little unnecessary, but I don't think it was a bad thing. I just think wasn't needed. They didn't need to do it. Seeing these flashbacks a thousand times before it just was not needed. I get the idea of why they were trying to get the point across and what it led to with the eventual moral of the story, but at the same time, I just think they could have left it out. So I'm going to give this one three out of five batterings. This should have been called Road Home the Network. I, again, now most of this is just, you know, the race to get Vicky Vale and everyone's after Vicky Vale. And the pages that involved Oracle and her dealing with Bruce being back weren't very, I don't even think that they amounted to a third of the book. You had the page where she's like, I knew it was you, but you don't really get them dealing with it. Like, oh, you're back. It's just they're concentrating on the matter at him which is Vicky Vale and we get a flashback to Bruce yelling at Barbara to stop feeling sorry for herself after she got shot if you were to chronologically take all the times like mm. that someone's yelled at Barbara after she got shot to stop feeling sorry for herself 
in Barbara's linear timeline, that's probably happened like five or six times where people told him to stop feeling sorry for herself. So she did this to prove them wrong. And it's just weird. He like comes with the flowers and she's like, I don't want flowers. So he like smashes the flowers up against the hospital wall. And he says that and Bruce says the same thing in, in the White's notebook that he does in the Catwoman and every order. He's like, when I left, there were some people who I was worried about, but I knew that Oracle would survive because she was strong. It's the same thing he said about Catwoman. That's the same thing he said about like, everyone else. He's like, I was worried about everyone else, but not that. Like, no, you're laughing, but tell me that I'm wrong. He's like, I was worried about everyone else, but I knew that Oracle or Catwoman or whoever I'm dealing with this month was strong. <laughs> deal with it. it. It's really weird because I think that a lot of people don't know what to do with Oracle because she's in the wheelchair and, you know, sometimes she's just a dispatcher for superheroes. She's more than a dispatcher, but sometimes that's what she is in the book. So I don't think that they knew how to do a whole book of Bruce and Oracle and dealing with each other's returns. So they did this instead. So I'm giving it two out of five batterings. I thought this was a fun issue. I liked the involvement of the Birds of Prey or people from the Birds of Prey and then also the Seven Men of Death. I thought the action sequences were really well paced throughout the story. And yes, as mentioned in the review, the dialogue is very 90s-esque. But I really like that catchy and corny, campy fun dialogue. I had no problem with the flashback. Uh, I thought it added some emotional element to this issue, whether we've seen it five times or not. Because predominantly this issue was just a, a big chase. I thought the artwork was pretty consistent. It was very clean. It was easy to follow. Uh, and I liked some of the panel layouts. So I'll give this... Three and a half out of five batterings. I thought the story was a little. It's a typical road home thing. More Vicky Vale plots with uh, Bruce's allies. So that that was fine. The flashback was kind of funny. Um, it, it didn't annoy me as much. Um, I, I actually liked liked when they first went to the clock tower. Though I'm sure there's a continuity discrepancy with that, but whatever. I thought that the artwork was uh, overall good. Although, well, here's the thing. Like, I really, really like that first page with Oracle. Like, like she looks really, really good. And I think that part of that is from the coloring. I really like the way that, that I just love that image points. I mean, I, I didn't really have any feelings towards it. Or I'll give it three out of five veterans. So that's going to give Bruce Wayne, the Road Home Oracle, three out of five veterans. So even in defeat, the detective manages to achieve some small measure of victory. As you said, detective, this is not over. Bruce Wayne, the road home, Raz El Ghul. This issue starts off with Raz contemplating about a uh, person that he killed in the past that he seriously, he sincerely cannot remember the name of, despite the fact that he ended this person's life. We see what we also saw at the end of the last issue, which is White Ghost chasing Vicky Vale through the streets after after she gets away from Bruce Wayne. We then see Bruce take out White Ghost and tell Vicky Vale to keep running. Police show up and basically Vicky Vale finds out that the police were told to also kill her. And this would be the police that are the corrupt ones, which, as we know from the Commissioner Gordon, are one in every 12. After that happens, we hear some gunshots, but it turns out the police missed. Vicky Vale keeps running. The police continue to chase her. And then we see the insider, who has taken out White Ghost at this point, or so we believe, take these two police and have some kind of rope wrapped around them and something that says Veritas Mode Activated shows up on the screen and we see that uh, the rope wrapped around them and turns it into is actually more like a polygraph machine 
Hmm. Lasso of truth, anyone? We continue on where they find out that the working, he's working, all these people are working for Razo Ghul. Razo Ghul has put out a hit on Vicky Vale, which Bruce already knew this, but it's come down the pipeline and now all kinds of people are trying to kill Vicky Vale. Vicky Vale runs off again and is in a cab while a sanitation department tries taking her out. Same thing with a fire truck. The entire time this is all occurring, Raz is contemplating about this person that he murdered before and why he still can't figure out the guy's name despite the fact that he was a worthy adversary turns out white ghost wasn't taken out and uh, him and bruce wayne battle while vicky vale escapes to her apartment where none other than Razel ghoul is waiting for her in the apartment he tells her that she must die for all the information that she knows bruce wayne is much more important than any story that she could ever write everything that he's done all of his accomplishments would be useless if she revealed this information Bruce takes out White Ghost and proceeds into the apartment to take Roz out when his entire suit that he's been wearing, the insider suit, seems to be breaking and he takes the mask off and reveals face to face that he is in fact Bruce Wayne to Vicky Vale. Roz says we need you need to kill her you need to deal with her because the reality is she knows too much and everything that she knows could ruin everything that you've worked so hard to achieve bruce tells raz i'll deal with it myself this is my problem not yours raz leaves and leaves bruce to deal with it vicky basically breaks down and says i after all of this i've realized that this story may be a story worth telling it could have won me a pulitzer but it would change everything and everything that you do is so important i am i'm worth She then burns all of the stuff having to do with Batman on her little Batman wall that she's got, which strangely enough is just a wall with a curtain rod. Pull the curtains over this Batman wall. I find that a little odd. It all burns and Vicky proceeds to say, I have to leave Gotham, but I have an idea. If uh, Bruce Wayne can't use a lover, maybe he can use a really good reporter. Bruce says, yep. That uh, sounds good to me. Then we see Roz contemplating. He finally remembers the name of the person he killed. And we see the final part of the White Casebook, which essentially says Batman realizes everything that has happened has uh, prepared him to accept help in expanding and accomplishing his mission. And now he's prepared to cast the shadow of the bat across the entire globe. That is the end of Bruce Wayne, The Road Home, Roz El Ghul. Alright, so this issue... I thought it was actually pretty good. I thought it was it was fast-paced, but it worked the way it was. It was a direct continuation of what we saw in the Oracle uh, one-shot. I think because of that, it works well because, well, one, these both of these books came out the same week. So if you bought both of them, as long as you read them in order, it would have been a plus and you would have gotten more out of it. Uh, I liked how they directly intertwined with each other. The other thing is, I did think that flashbacks of Roz killing this Frenchman and trying to remember his name and then the final sentiment where Roz says, Bruce Wayne, Batman detective, no matter what happens I will always remember your name, no matter what, and I'll remember all of your names because he's such a worthy adversary. I think that was a testament to not only how important Bruce Wayne is to Raz al Ghul, but also just the fact that Raz has such a attachment to Bruce Wayne despite the fact that you know, he's just another person in Roz's long overdue lifespan. I think this was a pretty good issue. Uh, I'm going to give it three and a half out of five batterings. 
I loved uh, Scott McDaniel's art. Uh, Scott McDaniel needs to be on Bat Books more often. Um, I hope they give him a regular stint after his uh, fill-in for Batman and Robin. I hope that Vicky leaving Gotham doesn't mean that she's leaving the books. As much as we, I've complained about where the storyline has gone, I think that the character has a lot of potential, and we need more civilians in Gotham City, not cop characters and characters who are secretly villains or heroes. We need more human-supporting cast members, and Vicky's someone who was around for a while, and I really liked it when they brought her back in the Gotham Gazette books last year, and... I mean, maybe this means that she'll have a role in Batman Inc. If they're saying, does Batman need a reporter outside of Gotham? Who knows? I hope that they don't make her one of the Batman and Batman Inc. That would. But I like this, and I, I like, I'm not sure, but I'm thinking I'm liking what they're doing with Bruce and Roz's relationship. Because it's it's kind of bordering on the more frenemies thing, and now it's like, you know, oh, the enemy. No one can reveal the identity of my enemy because I love my enemy. It's, I don't know, but it's done just right here, and... Like Dustin said, that whole thing with you know him not remembering that guy's name, but he remembers Bruce's name. It's uh, it's working for me. So I'm giving this four out of five batterings. Yeah, overall, I really liked this issue, and I really thought Roz's voice throughout this issue was really well written. Fabian wrote really good characters as he usually does. I am extremely relieved that the Vicky Vale situation has come to a resolution. Really glad that it's finished now. And contrary to Josh. I do not want to see her often in any of these books. She's really annoying to me. And 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 Scott McDaniel, yes, should be in these bad books more often. And Scott McDaniel's artwork was really good as usual. Three and a half out of five batterings. I think this was the best uh, Road Home issue out of all of them. Since it's, and it's not just that it concludes it. I think Fabian's come back into the light after a couple of letdown issues that, that I've read from him. And Scott McDaniel, this is this is classic Scott McDaniel, man. I mean, this is like what he was doing back when he was on a uh, Batman, back in like the late '90s, early 2000s, or yeah, 2000s. It's really expressive. He, it's less crowded than I guess the stuff he's been doing in Detective, because with Detective, there's all those other characters of Batman's and Joker gangs, and there's this. They're very small panels, so this one he has a little more breathing room, and there's some really good facial expressions and some classic Scott McDaniel stuff, like when when the insider is like hopping on the, in between the, the fire uh, the fire escapes. That's a classic Scott McDaniel trope, especially with with the Batman titles. I really liked how uh, Rachel was written here as well. The, uh, the idea of um, him not remembering a, a, a former enemy's name that was that was some good stuff, and that was some really classic Rachel Ghoul stuff. Very well done. I think that. I think that it would have been, this is not a, a slag on the issue, but I think that would have been interesting if after all this time, after all this this whole thing we've gone with Vicky Vale and after what Rachel had been trying to do, if he actually killed Vicky, because that I think that would be a very, I just think it would be a better story, a story a point, because it would um, bump Rachel up, reach up an even, even greater step as, as an enemy, but I mean, I don't see Vicky Vale becoming that relevant of a character anymore, even because she's a reporter. I mean, it would be nice for Batman to have a civilian supporting cast member, but after all this time, I just think it would be a lot more interesting of a story than just him saying, okay, and then leaving. I mean, I understand how Rachel respects Batman and everything, but I, I just think that would have been more engaging than what actually happened. But be that as it may, this was very good artwork, very good storytelling, very good conclusion to a very annoying subplot. So I'm going to give us a strong four out of five batterings. So Bruce Wayne, The Road Home, Razel Ghoul gets three and a half out of five batterings. What happened to the rest of the guys?
Think you're smart, huh? The guy that hired Hughes, they'll just do the same to you. Oh, criminals in this town used to believe in things. Honor. Respect. Look at you. What do you believe in, huh? What do you believe in? I believe whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you... Stranger. Moving into our next book, which is going to be Batman and Robin number 15. Batman and Robin number 15, written by Grant Morrison, artwork by Fraser Irving. This is the epic conclusion to the Batman and Robin Must Die story arc. The issue opens with the Joker dancing with a skeleton corpse dressed in a wedding gown. We soon see that he has Damien locked up in a casket which is with his mouth taped in a red clown nose, which is a really great image. We cut to Alfred watching television, and then he goes outside to meet the so-called Thomas Wayne as he returns, which we know is Dr. Hurt. We cut to television broadcasts where we see the drug is in full effect and the city's citizens are unleashing chaos throughout. But we see Simon Hurt posing as Thomas Wayne, saying that he has the solution to Gotham's problems, but it will come at a price. We cut back to the Joker and Damien, and the Joker has let Damien go because Damien is a piece to a piece of the puzzle to stopping Hurt, which is truly what the Joker wants. We cut to Pig driving a truck that con- contains Commissioner Gordon. Suddenly, Damien comes bursting through the car door, sending Pig through the windshield and saving Gordon. Damien sends Gordon on his way, and Damien goes after the, a scrambling Pig. However, a group of Pig's demented army is too big a match for Damien, and he is captured. We soon see both Damien and Robin in Hertz's hands. Hertz enters the room and quickly shoots Dick in the back of the head. But... As Hurt explains, he has only shot Dick with a 32 caliber pellet that will not penetrate his skull. However, he has placed it the shot perfectly so that it will cause a hematoma, and in 12 hours, Dick will be will have permanent brain damage, making him a vegetable. But Hurt offers Damien an ultimatum that if Damien helps Hurt, because Hurt is a surgeon, he will save Dick's life. We then see Hurt make his way to the bat box. He opens it to find a note that says gotcha and a bat tracer and then dick and damien quickly take out their captors and take hurt to the ground with each coming at him at the same time the money shot two punches to the face hurt is confused and damien says devil meet bat god and as hurt turns around we see a black silhouette in the shape of batman that says it's all over to be continued all right so batman and robin number 15 some aspects i think grant morrison sometimes is a little overrated. This might have been one of them. I didn't really find a lot of the things that was going on really that interesting. I think this is just leading to something, to the conclusion that he has come up with since starting to tell R.I.P. essentially. I mean, there really wasn't even that much happening in the issue as far as stuff that... I mean, there's 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 closure to some parts. There's an explanation of what's happening with the bullet and how exactly Dick Grayson is being shot with a gun. So there's some conclusion in that aspect, but it just seems like this is just issue that's leading to something bigger. I don't really... I'm not a big fan of Fraser Irving's art. I don't think it's horrible, but I just don't like the style that it is. Besides that, I can only give this two out of five batterings. All right, so this big reveal that, you know, because we had that about one or two issues ago when Dick was shot in the back of the head and the flash forward, ooh, what is it going to be? How is Dick going to survive? Oh, Oh, just kidding. It's not a real bullet. What was the point of shooting him in the back of the head then? Oh, I guess so that you can have Damien under your thumb. But still, it was just kind of a weird switcher reveal. Uh, speaking of reveals, um, I'm really curious if that's Bruce Wayne at the end of uh, the book. And if it is, 
it's a nice way to bring him in, but just because of the way that Grant Morrison is, it's it's probably going to be something completely and utterly crazy. But I'm I'm enjoying this. I'm along for the ride. I'm curious to see. You know, I, I like the gotcha, all this, all the switches that are happening. I'm hoping that we haven't seen the last of Joker and Doctor Hurt because definitely need to have a rematch. Because as we saw at the end of Infinite Crisis, when you let the Joker play, things get a little crazy. So I'm giving this four out of five batterings. Yeah, I really like this issue. To me, the silhouette at the end of the issue, it could be Bruce Wayne, but at the same time, I feel like there's several hints here that indicate that it could not be Bruce Wayne. The main one being that the rigid word balloons. To me, that indicates that the voice is very different than it would normally be. Now, that could be normally compared to Dick or, you know, I'm not sure. Secondly, I don't think Dick and Damien would have been able to to stop her and predicted that Bruce would just perfectly show up at this perfect time to save the day. I I don't know. It just seems a little, whatever, suspension of disbelief, right? But it could absolutely be Bruce Wayne if this takes place after all of these other events. But scheduling, I think, has made a lot of this a nightmare. Frazier Irving, so unbelievably good. I hope that he does more Batman work in the future. Some of the images are just great. The, the Damien Clown nose page, mm-hmm. it's like become one of my top ten favorite Batman images of all time. Like it, it was just, it was great. Um, the panel of Hurt shooting Dick, I thought was great as well. The Batman silhouette, of course, was really good. He just, he was just the perfect artist for this storyline. I don't know that he's the perfect artist for every Batman storyline, but just for this particular storyline, I don't see anybody else being able to draw this and have that kind of impact that he had. I love the Robin Graves pun the Joker uses at the beginning of the issue because it's an obvious reference to the fact that he was Overton Sexton the grave digger so he's robbing graves which i thought that was good stuff the one big issue that i had with the issue was when hurt shoots dick grayson here's the thing i don't want dick grayson to die of course i don't but it's because your name's not dan didio but i kind of wanted for him to die at the same time if that makes any sense with hurt explaining himself after shooting dick it was very cliche it was very b-movie villain like it's oh gee i right I, I i read that thinking Okay, come on, Grant Morrison. I, I know you're a better writer than that. You can do better than that. But I, I can dismiss it because I think, in a way, it maybe fits the Hurt character somewhat. The panel of Dick and Damien both punching Hurt, that kind of money shot image, was just really great. So overall, I thought this was really great news. Um, again, so much more here than just if you just read this one time through. So you got to look for it. But really great story, fantastic art. So I'll give it four and a half out of five batterings. I thought this was awesome. And this entire Batman Robin must die storyline, like this has been like one of the most continuously consistent and amazing storyline. Like every issue literally has been, to me, in my opinion, really, really, really good. The art goes without saying, I agree with the uh, the, the splash page where Damien's like screaming with the clown nose. And there's another panel where like um, Hurt meets Alfred and he says, you remember your old chip, don't you? I said it before, Fraser Irving makes this guy look out to be so evil. And it's like... I know how that's, that's not very descriptive, but it's like you got to see it. The looks in this guy's eyes and, and the smile he gives. It honestly, this guy could give Joker a run for his money in terms of like evil smiles. He really could. Um, like so, the art all around is amazing. My favorite, my iconic uh, panel personally was the the dynamic duo punching out Doctor Hurt. I thought that was awesome. I honestly think that Fraser Irving is, has become an iconic Batman artist. I will say he's. I guess that's not true because I don't think he, would, he can draw every single story. But if he did, I would not be crying. I will totally 100% admit that uh, the whole going back on Hurt shooting Dick and says, well, actually, it's just a 32 pellet, 
32 caliber pellets, so he won't die just yet. But given time, he will be paralyzed. I will say that was anticlimactic. I will totally agree with that. But I also think that it is in her twisted character to kind of torment him that way. And, you know, then he, he talks about how the acrobat has, you know, will only think about things, you know, thinking about being in the air while, while he's can't even move. I think that's in her character as... As kind of corny as that is, I think it works both ways. So that doesn't really put the issue down for me. After all this time with, with how we've been talking about how the past few issues have been very apocalyptic. And you see Robin getting captured, Batman getting unmasked. To me, the, the triumph of this issue is the triumph of the two heroes. And how they like, it goes from, from Dick saying, you know, you're finished. And then getting shot in the head. To hurt having a crap eating grin on his face. And then the, the, the big twist with Batman and Robin punching him out. And then... You see the clock. I, I think it's a clock in Wayne Manor. It's set to where Bruce's parents had died. I know there's like a, there's like a specific time, like like 10:46 or something like that. I thought that was really cool. And then when it says "Turn around, Doctor, meet Bat God," I really want, want that to be Bruce Wayne because first of all, it's a funny uh, pun on an internet meme where there was a while where Batman, you know, with time and plan, could do everything. So people started calling him Bat God. I thought that was cute. And just second, I, I just think that's really awesome. Just the way that he's come back to you know take him down once more after R.I.P. So I I I love it. I love it. I mean, I'm giving this five out of five. I thought this is perfect. All right, so that's going to give Batman and Robin number 15, four and a half out of five batterings. Watch out, Batman. This could be tricky. Have no fear of it. I'll keep all my wits about me. So long. For a minute. Moving into our next book, Ragman, Suit of Souls. Mm-hmm. Batman Suit of Souls, written by Christos Gage, illustrated by Steven Segovia. This issue starts off with a man named Roy Reagan, meeting a Jewish rabbi, asking him, basically, he, he basically asks, gets to the point where asking him, what makes a man go back on his faith? Because he's saying that his father denied and didn't tell him until he was 16 that he was, in fact, Jewish. But after all this exhibition, he says the heck with it and reveals that he is indeed Ragman. Rabbi says he would like to ha- help him with his questions, but he needs he needs more further explanation on how he came to be. So Ragman gives uh, the exposition that back in the 1500s, Jews were being persecuted in Prague, so they created a creature called the Golem. However, the Golem was too unruly and too violent against humans, so they so they sort of fixed that, so that now they created the guys called Ragman who was sort of an avenger of the Jewish people. Ragman then went through several centuries and several timelines righting wrongs and injustice, especially towards Jewish people, wherever they go. During World War II, Roy's father, Jerzy Reagan, Reaganowitz was the, the man under the, the Ragman cowl. He had an ability where once he defeats somebody, he gains their souls and uses that to amp up his ability with speed, strength, and agility. However, during a siege on a, on a ghetto during World War II, Ragman, who was caught in the fire, which is the Ragman costume's weakness, fled. And at that point, Roy's father went to the U.S. and changed his name and denied that he was Jewish. The rabbi he's talking to doesn't really understand, neither does Roy. But we get to the point where after he says that his father was killed by criminals who broke in their home, uh, Roy soon became, found the costume and became the new ragman. After a meeting with Batman and to reaffirm his, his role as a hero, the rabbi suggests that he goes into the souls and asks their opinion on who about his father, see why he gave up. Roy finds a man named Jagar Brandt and Brandt explains that there are some times where the souls take over the wearer, and during that night in the fire, they became afraid of the fire and overtook Rory's father. So Rory, who would have easily died fighting for what was right, wasn't to blame for fleeing. He changed his name because he he was he felt ashamed for being Jewish, not for his action, not for being Jewish, but for his action as a Jewish man. So with this new understanding, Rory is reaffirmed and is 
faith in his father, and his faith as Ragman. That he never stopped being a hero either way. The end. Alright, so Ragman's Suit of Souls. I have to say, I was looking forward to this one-shot before it came out, and I don't really have an explanation of why I was looking forward to it so much, other than Ragman has been appearing within the Batman universe for the past two years, off and on, and when they said that they were going to do a one-shot, I thought to myself, wow, maybe now I will finally find out who Ragman is. This one-shot did not only a perfect job at telling who Ragman is, how he came to be, his origin story, but also told a normal story of somebody who is a troubled character who wants to know more about their past and finds it out in the self-contained story. I thought this was a really good story. I want to see Ragman more often within the Batman universe. I might be alone when I say that, but I think Ragman is a character that really needs to be seen more just because he has such unique characterizations that I think can be real instrumental to a really good story within the Batman universe. That being said, I'm going to give this 4 out of 5 batterings. I liked this a little more than I thought I would because I don't care about Ragman and this actually made me care about Ragman and uh, the thing at the beginning where they they pretty much gave you who the character was in a nutshell. It interested me. Now, would I buy a Ragman ongoing series? No, but this held my interest. It had questions of faith and religion and other things in a way better than Asriel, so I'm going to give it three out of five batterings. Yes, I was pleasantly surprised by this issue. I really know very little to nothing about the Ragman character, but I've always been interested in him, and this was very informative. I really like seeing the Ragman throughout all these different time periods and how we've reached this point. And while I was doing that, I was also kind of telling this this father-son story that was actually a pretty good one. Um, I thought the artwork by Steven Segovia was really good. It had this like very old-school aesthetic kind of style to it, but I, I can't really pinpoint what time period I'm referring to there, but I thought that it fit the story really well, and I will give this four to five batterings. I too was pleasantly surprised by this issue. I was actually, <laughs> before recording, I was just going over my notes, and I was messaging, uh, I think either Josh or Zach saying, oh, I, I had to go through two crazy religious stories, and uh, conversely to Asriel, I thought this was very, very good. I thought that the art was pretty cool. The art reminded me of David Finch kind of a lot, but it was very good art. It was very nice and detailed and colorful, and the story was basically like, like a, a, it, this is like a perfect one-shot. Gives you all the, all the back history you need to know. Gives you the motivations. It, uh, doesn't sound too ridiculous. At least I don't think so. I think it's kind of cool. There's a a hero who is bound by his Jewish identity. I think that's very interesting. True, Batman's only in one panel, <laughs> but um, as a comic book, I think this 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 was very very solid, very very well done. I'm giving this a four and a half out of five veterans. All right, so that's going to give Ragman Suit of Souls a total of four out of five batterings. Now it's time for Gotham's favorite game show, Riddle Me This! Starring the Prince of Puzzlers, the King of Conundrums, the Move into our next book, Detective Comics number 870. So when we last left off, we saw a boy being uh, thrown off the side of a, <laughs> a building, and that was by the imposter Batman. So we cut back to what's happening at the circus. We don't actually see what happened to the boy. We see Batman having an inner monologue about what's happening within the confines of this. We find out that uh, everything that we've already known as far as the fact that the fair was crowded, the gas got loose, the 
Joker started beating up everybody. The police came. Then all of a sudden, these imposter Batman came with guns. Batman contemplates what Winslow Heath could have possibly had on Mayor Hattie, considering he basically signed for the license for the fair, even though everybody knew what was going to happen at the fair. All these imposter jokers get a hold of weapons, start taking people out all the time. There's a big situation happening on the Ferris wheel, and Batman feels as if he is being called to go there. When he goes there, the wheel starts to come apart as an explosion goes off, caused by grenades thrown by one of the imposter jokers. The wheel rolls off, and Batman can't save everybody, but he can save only one person. He saves one person, but their spine snaps. While this is all occurring, Dr. Caligar is watching on and saying to Winslow Heath, I think this is a success after all. We uh, have successfully proven that man reverts to beast based on the chemical neurotransmitters that have the Joker venom gas has caused people to experience. At this, there's a bunch of imposter Jokers that take this Dr. Caligar down below and torture him Batman comes in right as the Jokers are leaving, or pretty much done beating the pulp out of this guy, when he grabs the headset and finds out that uh, the person on the other line is Winslow Heath. We then cut back to the fairgrounds where the two police officers who are dressed up as imposter Batman and taking people out are wearing the, the GCPC badges and they see the imposter Batman. They say, oh look, we're one of you, we're on your side. And the imposter Batman just plants a couple of bullets straight into their chest. Batman then says over the intercom, Winslow Heath, I want to meet you. And he says, okay, meet me in the Hall of Mirrors. Batman goes into the Hall of Mirrors and we see the imposter Batman following Batman in. Batman is almost shot by the imposter Batman. Batman freaks out and says, you've destroyed everything that I've created, my name. He rips off the mask and finds out that it's Winslow Heath underneath the mask. We then find out at that point that Winslow Heath is all upset because what ended up happening was years ago Batman was chasing the Joker. Heath and his girlfriend used to get stoned on top of a rooftop and then make love under the stars. They went up there just like any other night to do this and the Joker (laughs) came up and chucked a couple of Joker Venom containers at them and caused the gas to go off. And they got really high. (laughs) (laughs) Batman saves Heath by taking him to the hospital, but as we found out in a previous issue, the Joker Venom mixed with the drugs that they were taking actually just completely paralyzes them. They are not they don't die, nothing happens to them, they're just paralyzed. Nobody knew about Winslow Heath's girlfriend being on top of the roof. Nobody ever goes up there. Batman grabbed Heath, brought him to the hospital, and the entire time Heath was trying to say, save Beth, but uh, it was undetermined what he was saying. Heath went back to the rooftop after he woke up from his, I guess, paralyzation. Turns out, literally, Beth, his girlfriend, sat there the entire time, (laughs) paralyzed, and was eventually crow food, which is kind of disturbing in, in a sense. It's really actually quite sad how that ha- how that occurred. Batman says, doesn't say anything, and Winslow Heath says, well, don't tell me you're sorry because you're not. And Batman says, well, I'm just going to take you in because just because uh, you lost someone you love doesn't mean you can turn into a murdering psychopath, which I find quite interesting. Batman then takes Winslow Heath out to the crowd, and Winslow Heath gets mixed up inside the crowd, and Batman's pretty determined that Winslow Heath got taken out. 
toll of 174 people died at this fairgrounds. A lot of the people are probably never going to actually see a jail cell because their lawyers will all plead temporary insanity, and nobody's going to be able to argue with that. Then we do find out that at the end of the issue, that boy who was dropped off the side of the building by the imposter Batman is in fact dead. He literally hit the ground, which I gotta say I did not see coming. Batman's back at the Batcave, and he's talking to Alfred about whether or not Winslow Heath is actually gone. And we see Winslow Heath in a warehouse that is full of all kinds of Joker juice, which there is enough doses for every single citizen in Gotham City. We find out that he has a nice little uh, shrine. Actually, his dead wife sitting on a chair is the shrine, but his dead wife skeleton is sitting on a chair. And he's telling her that if they don't get better, they're going to have to take their medicine. So I'm sure this is not the last time we've seen Winslow Heath. And that is the end of Detective Comics number 870. As a conclusion to the storyline that David Hines been telling, Scott McDaniel's been drawing, I think it was it did two things. It concluded very well as far as tying up a lot of the loose ends. It explained why Winslow Heath is so upset with Batman, and on top of that, it also created Winslow Heath as a future imposter Joker slash villain for Batman in the future. Do I think it'll be he'll become a normal villain? No, but. It's somebody that has been left with now. He can appear later in the future if need be. There's two things. One, this was clearly not Dick Grayson as Batman. Uh, we talked about this the last couple episodes when I was reviewing the last couple issues. This is not Dick Grayson as Batman. This is Bruce Wayne as Batman, which for a while it was hard to tell who, which one it was. But the fact that Batman states, you have destroyed everything that I have created over all these years... I'm sorry, I would never see Dick saying that. Dick is not going to say something like that because it's not true of him. Now, it can be argued that Dick would say that in regards to the Batman name. I just don't see Dick ever doing that. So I'm sorry, this was a Bruce Wayne story that got thrown in in the middle of Detective Comics before Bruce Wayne got returned. Which is fine because ultimately, it was good. The surprise for me was that that boy that was dressed as Robin, he actually got he actually died. Because I never saw that coming. I thought it was going to be a typical... Somebody gets dropped off the side of the building and somebody saves him. You don't see that happen in comics very often. Overall, I think it was a decent issue. I don't think the story arc as a whole was very good, but I think this issue did a good job at concluding the story arc that has been occurring. So I'm going to give this one three out of five batterings. Most of my thoughts are still the same thoughts that I had on the storyline as of last issue. It feels like a confidential story arc that was dropped here because of the Batwoman confusion when she left the title. I do like Scott McDaniel's art, and like Dustin, I was expecting the character to be saved when they were and they were killed, which you know actually made me pay attention to the story a little more. But still, this the whole thing reeks of fill-in, and the fact that Bruce Wayne is there doesn't do anything to change my opinion of the whole fill-in thing now. Just because something's a fill-in doesn't mean that it's a bad story, but you can do a fill-in story and make it interesting. This isn't really doing it so well. But hey, Scott McDaniel on Batman, I said I wanted more of that, I'm getting more of it, so two and a half out of five batterings. Yes, the strong point of this issue is definitely Scott McDaniel. He has the ability to drive the characters and settings with so much energy, and they are so vibrant and loud that it really makes you kind of wake up and I think... The artwork oftentimes looks larger in life, which I think is a really cool aesthetic to, that he has, and I thought that was really prominent in this issue. As for the story, the Winslow Heath reveal that he was playing both sides, I thought was 
I thought that was really interesting. I liked the flashback of Winslow Heath's flashback, and I just felt the revenge plot was uh, a bit too extreme, and I didn't completely buy it, but it can be dismissed, I guess. Also, besides the example that Dustin provided, the only way that I figured that I was able to assume that this was Bruce Wayne was that because of the timeline. The characterization, it doesn't really support, it, it doesn't really give you any evidence to which Bruce Wayne it if it's Bruce Wayne or Dick Grayson, which I think is a big fault of this whole storyline by David Hine. I love the two-page spread with everybody fighting. I thought that was really cool to look at. But this was just kind of an average story that kind of brings up that whole question of does Batman create these villains or, you know, whatever, which... There's no, yeah, there's I'm, no, there's no clear, clear answer to that. I mean, it's just, it just kind of when that whole kind of thing was brought up, it just really bogged down the story for me. I don't really like the possibility of Winslow Heath returning, not because I didn't like the character, but we already have the Joker. We don't really need an, an imposter one. But overall, really terrific artwork. The story's just kind of, it's just kind of average. So I'll give this three out of five batterings. I have mixed feelings on this conclusion of the story. It was like every other issue was liking it. I wasn't liking it. I was liking it. I wasn't liking it. And this one, I kind of feel both things. I liked the reveal that, that Heath was uh, playing both sides. I think it was really clever. And he has good motivation for hating Batman. I think that the way they did it, it was sort of obnoxious. Or maybe that's not the right word. Like, to even suggest, oh, like, this is not one, this is not one of those times where you can pull the, the classic, ho, 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 Batman creates all his villains in his city. They're all a result of him. Like that just felt like it, it was like it didn't make any sense. I mean, like blame the Joker, man. Don't don't like, oh, this is all your fault, Batman, for trying to save lives and that you know, we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, I, I can't imagine him going to this alliance against Batman. I mean, cause really, when Batman had been there, if it wasn't for the Joker, that logically I just can't stand that. In terms of who the who which Batman this was, I think, and I don't know for a fact, but I think if I were to guess, this is a situation where David Hine really wanted to have Bruce Wayne, Dan Dio and Mike Mart said, well, we can't do that because he's not here. So he made it ambiguous. And the reason I say it's ambiguous is because he says, yes, I've given my life to this costume, my life. He sold it, made it cheap. He weren't fit to wear it. All that. I mean, it is, first of all, it's Bruce Wayne's costume, not Dick Grayson's costume. But in the flashbacks, you did see both Batman and Robin. And I'm assuming it was Dick Grayson. It could have been Jason Todd, but let's just say it was Dick Grayson. So I think it was ambi- purposely ambiguous. But for all intents and purposes, this is a Bruce Wayne Batman story. I also think that, like, I don't know, maybe the cops could have done something or maybe they could have gotten more heroes. It's basically Batman fighting, like, a bajillion people. It's almost the cult-level mayhem. But I don't know. I'm I'm very conflicted. Alfred's rather smug at the end where he he really shouldn't be. So I'm going to give this uh, a middle-of-the-road two-and-a-half out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give Detective Comics number 873 out of five batterings. Anybody in there? There's no evidence anyone was inside. There was somebody in there. Batman saved his butt. I seen him, man. He was just leaping on the rooftops, carrying somebody on his shoulders. I seen it. Like a, a dark angel snatching the guy from the fires of Hades, man. Let's move into our final book, Superman Batman number 77. Superman Batman number 77, written by Joshua Williamson, with artwork by Ale Garza. The issue opens with Supergirl in Metropolis, where she sees the police have discovered this massive grave full of bodies in the suicide slum. Supergirl decides she needs help from Batman and flies off to go find him in Gotham City. We then cut to Gotham City in the sewers of Gotham City, where we see Damien, who is chained upside down in Killer Croc's lair. Just before Croc is going to kill Damien, Damien explains that he picked the locks on the chains two minutes ago and he breaks free 
then he begins to whip Croc with the chains. Croc then goes into a rage, but then, but just then Supergirl comes flying through the ceiling, knocking Croc out with a punch. Supergirl asks Damien where, asks where Batman is, and then she asks where Tim is. Damien tells her they are both off busy, but explains that he can help. She reluctantly allows his participation, but tells him to find his own way to M- Metropolis and flies off. At the Metropolis City morgue, Damien and Supergirl discover that all the victims were students at Metropolis University and were all involved in the internship program at LexCorp. After the interrogation with a LexCorp employee that gathers no information, Damien and Supergirl decide to contact the remaining students that are alive. Luckily, they are having a Halloween party that night. At the Halloween party, the two go have gone undercover with Supergirl as a pink bunny and Damien as Lil Matches Malone. <laughs> After eavesdropping, the two learn that all the students are terrified except for one person. Supergirl quickly after him, and she is suddenly hit with some fear toxin, and we learn that this is the Scarecrow. The fear toxin is making Supergirl think that Damien is Reactron, and she quickly goes after him. She also imagines Supergirl telling her how disappointed he is in her. After a brief while, Supergirl is able to snap out of it. Damien quickly takes care of the Scarecrow. Damien concludes that the first toxin must have caused the heart attacks, and then Scarecrow had them buried. Supergirl asks why, and Scarecrow explains because Lex Luthor took his ring from him, the yellow ring Scarecrow wore during Blackest Night, and he wants it back. He never felt such power. Killing the interns is just the beginning of his revenge on Lex Luthor. The pair then drop him off at Arkham Asylum. Supergirl then drops Damien off at the penthouse, which Dick, which leaves Dick with some questions. Dick is teasing Damien about liking Supergirl when Damien says it was just a case. She was just an adequate partner, even for an alien. And with her superhearing, Supergirl says, little jerk, as she flies off. And that is the end of Superman Batman number 77. All right, Superman Batman number 77. I thought this was kind of a, a nice change from what we normally see with inside Superman Batman. Instead of being specifically Superman and Batman, we had the Superman element, which is Supergirl, and Batman element, which is Damien. A couple things I really liked. One, I thought it was nice to have a uh, Halloween issue actually follow fall around Halloween. How many times do we see stories about vampires and werewolves and they have nothing... They're no, they never get released around Halloween. It never happens. And it always seems to happen where the only things that actually match up with the holidays are the actual holiday specials. So, conveniently, this matched up perfectly with Halloween since it came out a week prior to Halloween. Uh, the other thing I really liked was I thought it was really cool to see Damien dressed as little matches, as Supergirl put it. I thought that was quite interesting. And I thought that was a nice little, uh, I guess you could call it an Easter egg. Um, the other thing I really thought was cool, which we don't see as often anymore, is I really like the costume that Damien is in. I like him with the hood. I like him with the hood that flows into the cape. I think that's really cool. I just don't think that's used as much. It was used a lot when they first made Damian Robin back in the begin, you know, uh, June of 2009. We don't see that very often anymore, and I think it's something that they should use more because it gives Damian not only a different perspective than all of the other Robins, but it also makes it real. Like I like looking at the character and thinking, "Wow, that guy kind of looks a little creepy," and I mean creepy in a way where oh should I should I be scared of this guy because he could you know his face is hidden he could he possibly beat my rear end I think the hood should be used more often I don't really have anything that I didn't like I thought the inclusion of Killer Croc was cool I think the inclusion of the Halloween element was cool I think everything that they did in the issue was pretty good so I'm gonna give it three and a half out of five batterings 
I didn't like this as much as I thought I would because I generally like the issues of Superman, Batman, where they stray from they normally do. And instead of doing Superman and Batman, they'll have like Nightwing and Superboy or something like that. Uh, And lately, the the popular thing has been Damien tours the DCU and Damien guest starring and teaming up with all these people. And this is around the point where it's starting to lose its appeal. He's also going to be in Teen Titans, you know, for an extended arc or something soon so let's see how good that is i mean it was fun in world's finest it was fun in Batgirl, but here it's just the same old damien cliches where damien's helping somebody and saying how worthless they are and then giving the person you know a backhanded insult at the end as it it didn't really work for me there it's the same it's the same plot as always someone looks for batman and they're stuck with damien it's it's almost like the plot from that superman animated series episode where he goes to gotham to find batman and he winds up working with robin instead except this time it's supergirl and this time robin is damien and he's doing his damien thing so i'm gonna give it two out of five batterings normally i would be very irritated with this issue simply because superman and a batman really never show up there's that one blackest night moment where superman shows up i'm really disappointed in you and uh but they never appear but i thought this issue was a lot of fun. I thought there was a lot of fun banter between Damon and Supergirl. And it was it was just a clever, campy little Halloween issue that I that I really liked. I thought the artwork was pretty good. I thought it went well with this very lighthearted story. I liked how they incorporated Killer Croc and Scarecrow and Lex Luthor's involvement in some way and kind of referencing Blackest Night and I just thought it was I thought it was a lot of, it was really interesting and it was just really simple and fun to read and I, th- I thought it was really good so four out of five batterings um, I, I wasn't tired as, as that but I did enjoy this issue Ale Garza I, I liked his art I liked his art on Batgirl and I liked his art here I think it's another example of the colors being very well very well done but uh, the art's pretty good there's not much to say because this is, this is a holiday issue but uh, it's a really good it's, it's a nice comic, you know, D- Damien and Supergirl messing around. I think the little thing with the end with Damien, oh, he may have a crush on Supergirl, was forced. But as it as the rest of the issue was pretty well done. I liked how it had continuity with Blackest Night. I loved little ma- little matches. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> Though I wish he had actually had matches so he could be called that. But uh, it, looked, it looked like, in fact, that panel kind of looked like it was done by Dustin Wynn. But that's neither here nor there. Um, so I, I thought this was pretty solid. I'll give this a, sh- a straight three and a half out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give Superman Batman number 77 three and a half out of five batterings. All right, so that's all our comic reviews. Let's throw over Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast so far. Um, Now we're going to do something a little bit different, and I'm going to be reviewing a Batman trade paperback or story. My name is Nick, and today I'm going to be looking at Batman Son of the Demon. This is a graphic novel written by Mr. Mike Barr, who's worked on Batman Year Two, and he's also worked on Bride of the Demon, an upcoming book on BBFB. The art is provided by Jerry Bingham, and the book was published in 1987. This book is part of a trilogy. We've already had Birth of the Demon, and as I said earlier, we're yet to have Bride of the Demon, which is coming up soon. 
So here we're going to see a little bit more about Talia and Bruce, and will things ever work out? Let's find out. I wasn't always here in the mountains. centers on the eco-terrorist and head of the League of Assassins, Raz al Ghul, who's aiding Batman in his quest to solve the murder of one of Gotham City's most prominent scientists. Raz al Ghul and Batman turn out to be searching for the same man, the terrorist known as Quain. Quain is a rogue assassin who has murdered Raz al Ghul's wife, mother to his favorite daughter and heir apparent, Talia. Batman has shared a stormy on-again, off-again romance with Talia for many years, despite his ideological conflict with her father. During the course of this storyline, Batman has time to properly romance and marry Talia. The service is performed by Raz. Talia soon becomes pregnant, and the prospect of a family has a profound effect on Batman's demeanour, making him more risk-averse and softening his typically grim outlook. Batman is nearly killed protecting the recently pregnant and still very dangerous Talia from an attack by the assassin's agents. Observing Batman's dangerous and overly protective behaviour, Talia resolves that she cannot allow him to continue to act in such a manner, as he will almost certainly be killed. So, Talia claims to have miscarried and the baby is lost. Crushed by the news, Batman returns to his typically grim disposition. He joins forces with Raz to stop Quain from using a weather machine to ignite World War III. After this, he and Talia agree to have their marriage dissolved. Batman returns to Gotham, never knowing that in fact Talia is still carrying his child. The child is a boy and he's born and left with an orphanage and soon adopted by a western couple. The only hint of his impressive heritage is a jewel-encrusted necklace, a gift that Bruce gave to Talia just before they attacked the villain's headquarters. And this is not the last we're going to see of Bruce and Talia's son. Count on that. I'm deeply impressed. As am I. Batman is often shown to be antisocial. However, this is not the case in this story. Batman really goes through a lot of emotions here, but he's also written quite differently to his normal self. The core beliefs were changed by the writer, Mike Barr. We saw this in year two when he brought in Bruce with a gun. Um, and Mike Barr clearly has different opinions to what Bruce is than I do, because I seem to differ with him on certain aspects of Bruce's character. And he did it again here. Now, Batman having a family seems to contradict his image as a lone avenger. One of the ways that people identify Batman is through the loneliness that he shows. Having a family seems to bring the thought into Bruce's head of leaving and raising to live happily ever after. Not very Batman-like, but an interesting new direction. I will say that. It's not something I completely dismissed. It was an interesting new direction for Bruce to to go down. Now, the son of the demon is... uh, Who's the son here? 
Is it Batman, the son of Roz, which Roz did call him a son in this story? Or is it Damien, son of the Batman? Is Bruce the demon here? So who is the son? I thought that was quite an interesting question. And why do I say that? Because Batman killed the villain pretty ruthlessly, and he was happy about it. I know he was upset about losing his child, but it was pretty severe from Bruce. Um, the guys, uh, Roz asks Bruce, perhaps the guy's at peace, and Bruce says, I hope not. He wanted to cause this guy a lot of pain, and that is not what I'm used to seeing from Bruce. So in some ways, this book takes the Batman character in new directions. The book goes in an interesting turn. In other ways, it doesn't quite reflect what we think of uh, Batman. This definitely isn't the flashy, light-hearted Batman of the 1960s, but it's neither a grim and gritty character either. He's a driven and dedicated crime fighter, but we get to see a human side. Batman's as much a detective here as a vigilante. And for every scene of hand-to-hand combat, there's a competitive aside or talking head scene with Ra's al Ghul where Bruce shows off his cerebral side and we get to see a bit more of the character. So an interesting balance there. The subplot of Batman's relationship with Talia gradually chips away at Batman's tough exterior to the extent that he changes it changes him as he starts to protect Talia while she's pregnant over achieving his goals. He has a new priority hit now to protect Talia over achieving success in his mission and Talia never I think seems to have much development as a character and I was hoping for a little more here because I thought she would get a few more opportunities than just being an action girl who follows Bruce everywhere um, but unfortunately she virtually has no personality still which is a shame I thought this was a chance to do more with her although I liked her decision to lie to Bruce about the sun because she felt it was changing him that was one positive, but she just seems to follow Batman around everywhere, and there's not a lot more to it than that, and that's a shame. I wish she had a bit more, a few more dimensions to her character. Now, The Son of the Dean is much more of a Batman tale than one about Ra's al Ghul, but their relationship is very well defined in these pages. They, they have the same motives, but they have different ways of achieving those goals. However, in this book, Raz was a little dull because he wasn't the villain here. He was an ally. And when he's not menacing, I don't know, it didn't quite work for me as well. I always like that there's an international flavour with uh, the Raz al Ghul stories, and this one is no exception. It's nice to get a break from Gotham now and again and have a bit more of a freedom fighter story spread across the world. And I, I quite enjoyed that aspect. I always do with those stories. And the story doesn't pull its punches when it comes to violence either, with lots of scenes of death and torture, given the pretty unsettling quality throughout the book. But it's never over the top or too much, but it's quite skillfully done. It was interesting to see a happy Ra's al Ghul family, different dynamics to what we've seen in the past, where it's usually the daughter or the father betraying each other. But here, they're both um, they're working together, and, and Bruce is included in that. And when it's announced that uh, Talia's pregnant, Bruce plans on naming the child Thomas or Martha, which I thought was quite interesting, saying that it's going to turn out to be the happiest child in the world when it grows up. Let's just wait and see how that turns out. And Bruce himself was very happy with Talia, unusual for him. And of course, we all knew it wasn't going to last forever or even long. But Talia and Bruce is one of those things where it just won't ever work out. But it's nice to see... Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Never going to be a long-term thing. Uh, Jerry Bingham's line work, I think, brings a good realism to the book, um, and the restrained colour ensures it feels a lot more realistic than most Batman, traditional Batman stories. 
but the colouring does become a little bit washed out in certain parts and it's not very vivid and I hope for a little bit more from this story but it's okay but there was some a really boring part in the middle of the book and the only parts that really engaged with me were when Bruce was dealing with the child, this potential child that was coming along and those were the bits that interested me the, the story about the villain whose name I'm not even sure about Quyan or whatever it was not sure. Um, the rest was a little ordinary, but Bruce and the child is was a really interesting part for him to deal with, something new, something fresh, and it's going to come back and uh, affect him later on. So, funnily enough, this book does have a major plot point and development in the story for the character, but the real story of this book wasn't that good. It was the, the subplot about the child that was the most interesting. So I'll be giving the book two and a half out of five Batarangs. I have to go after him, Talia. Will you help me? You are so like him, making me choose between the two of you. Oh, beloved, why has he forsaken me? Does he think I've betrayed him? I can't pretend to know what Raish thinks, Talia. The only thing he and I have ever agreed upon is our feelings towards you. And next time on Bat Books for Beginners, a familiar face is returning. Actually, make that two. As we get a crossover between Batman, Green Arrow, The Poison, Tomorrow. The enemy here is Poison Ivy, whose latest scheme and a chance encounter have left Green Arrow's girlfriend, Black Canary, on the brink of chemical-induced death. So, look forward to that book next time. I've been Nick, and now I'll send you back to Dustin and the guys. See ya. What will you do now? back to the authorities. Your father has much to answer for. I am truly sorry, beloved, but he is my father. Please, dismount. Another time. Alright, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you pick up the next book for the next episode. Let's get into what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. We will be covering Batman and Robin number 16, Batman Confidential number 50, Batman Catwoman Follow the Money, Red Hood Lost Days number 6, Batgirl number 15, Batman the Return of Bruce Wayne number 6, Birds of Prey number 6, Knight and Swire number 2, and Red Robin number 17. So that's everything for this episode. Make sure you are checking out the website for all the daily Batman comic news, as well as all the news related to movies, TV, merchandise, and video games. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and you can send us an email at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. Be sure to join the forums and get involved with other Bat fans. And, of course, as always, you can leave us a review on iTunes. So that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. You got Josh. This is Zach. This is Donovan. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Take care. Happy trails.
The person you tried to reach is not here at the moment. <laughs> Seriously? What the f That was the most terrifying. <laughs> what the f is that? I thought that was. No, I thought that was Josh. <laughs> this was Josh saying hello. <laughs> Like, hello. It didn't. It didn't sound that much different. Oh my god, that was hilarious. Oh what? boy, there was You're... something that just came on your mic, and it was like some woman's voice, like, "Hello, the person you are trying to reach is not available at this time," or whatever. It was like had this weird, like, like Blade Runner esque like score going on in the background of her voice. Like it was, it was like, what the heck? I didn't hear it. It, it, might, it might be because I have Pamela, like, on, and Pamela sometimes oh, does. But the funny thing was, when the lady said <laughs> the hello, when, when, when the lady said hello, I literally thought it was your... Is it, does fan. anybody else hear that, that weird sound that sounds like a clown car? That's, no, that's Josh's text. Yes, that. yes. That, that's, oh, okay. that. Take the hello and do and something plug it in it. At, no, plug it in at the beginning when we introduce... No. He'll be like, this is Josh. Hello! And then... Because the <laughs> it sounds just like him. No. Yeah! No. Did it. Hello! <laughs> anyway. Alright. I'm putting my phone on vibrate. No more clown. <clears throat> With Magic wired. Christian had uh, Ringo, oh, I, yeah, had I Ringo Star in it. Yes, and Peter Sellers. Yep. Yeah, but Ringo Star was in it. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Bring right, no fire and play the pain <clears throat> from the panels. Uh. Alright. <laughs> it's ignored Dustin. No, the best did you listen to the bloopers from the last one when you had your mic muted and Josh started talking, but because you were recording, you could hear what you were saying. It was I would like no, I, I didn't get to, I don't I, think I got to that. I died. Like, I only got into like six minutes of the bloopers. There was like fifteen minutes. I only listened to like six and I had four minutes worth keeping no. so I was like ah, I don't I'm not gonna listen to the rest. it was it was it was terrific I was laughing hysterically it's like cause you're like what hey, hey no 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 I, come on oh, <laughs> you're like no and then you're like oh sorry my mic was muted my mic was muted but we can hear everything that you're saying with your mic muted it was great 